0: I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis.
0: This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unnerstahl.
1: And I'm Mike Snoonian.
0: And we are here with a brand new month and a new theme in the mental health world. We are talking today about paranoia. And I've had a garbage song in my head all day long. Oh my God. Because <laughs> me too. Wait, is it the like, this yeah. is
2: the voice that keeps me awake? Is that it? Because I've had that in my no, head. No, no, it was
0: the... I think I'm paranoid <laughs> that
2: way. Okay, I've just had a separate garbage song stuck in my head for no <gasps> reason. Then, so that's oh yeah, well, that's cool.
0: That's because garbage is great. Yeah, they are. You know? I miss more people should listen to garbage. I, I miss garbage. <laughs> hey, let's bring it back. Yes. Um, So anyways we are talking about paranoia and we are pairing it with the movie Sinister today and I'm so excited to talk about this movie because I love it so we are going to start talking about what our first experience with this movie was like what was the first time we watched it Um, just kind of what's our entry point in so Mike what was your first experience with Sinister?
1: So this was day one, screening one, like 10 o'clock at the morning at the local theater for me. Like ticket bought the night before. Like I couldn't wait for this movie. Like the trailers looked incredible for it. Um, I'd really been anticipating it for a long time and it didn't let me down. Like at, at the time, like I worked out of home and could do like home office days. So I definitely played hooky. To catch it, and I'm like, this movie, like, blew me away, and with all of the great horror that's come out in the past 10 years, uh, and, you know, especially, like, Blumhouse has done a ton with small budgets, and you have A24 and IFC Midnight, this t- film seems to get overlooked,
0: mm-hmm. and it's a
1: shame. Like, I I love this movie, so I am really excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Laura, what about you? Um, hard same to everything that Mike just said, except I have no memory <laughs> of when I first saw it. And that really bothers me because I remember it making such a strong impression on me. But I, I can't remember if I saw it in a theater or if I saw it when I was living in this apartment where we had a we were we were living in a loft and had a huge projector. So we would project movies on the wall. So it was kind of like a, a, a home theater you know, cheaply done, and I, either way, it had that big impact on me, and I remember the big Super 8 film images on a, on a big, you know, kind of screen um, feeling so entrancing, and that soundtrack just got under my skin, and, like, I love when a movie gets under my skin in this particular way. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Oh, man, loved it. Yeah, I remember. Um, I I don't have a clear memory of the first time I watched it either. Um, I'm pretty sure I rented it, and I was kind of the opposite. I think I was just kind of in a point in my life when I was kind of negative on horror, um, and just kind of being a hater in general. And I think the title of this turned me off, and I thought because I kind of lumped it in with Insidious, and I was like, oh, it's just another one of those like kind of cheap jump scare movies, and I just wasn't really into it. And I remember renting it because I just kind of wanted to watch something scary one day and being really surprised at how good it was. Um, And I can't remember if it did well or not when it came out, but I think I do remember like criticism of the title, like, Oh, it's just like just another one of those types movies is what I remember hearing. But it's really good. I remember being really scared, and every time I watch it, I'm more and more and more scared. <laughs> and it freaked me out last <laughs> night when I was watching it. Um so yeah, I love it. I also I just wrote in my notes, Ethan Hawk because <laughs> <laughs> <whew>! <laughs> this <laughs> this may have been my first experience with falling in love with a sweater wearing man mm. because this oh the sweater in my
2: own, my handwritten notes that you can't see, uh, i wrote I just wrote the phrase Sweater, daddy. Uh, <laughs> kind of like a le- yeah. like a leather daddy but with sweaters so mm-hmm.
1: there's no lie I mean there's absolutely no lie I in mean any of those it,
0: this is like sweater perfection was this you
2: know? was this not also kind of Ethan Hawke's comeback to some degree it kind of paved the way for first reformed and like sort of a little mm-hmm. renaissance that he's having because I mean he, the purge yeah, yeah. He, yeah I think so he, he's just so good in this movie but we'll get into it <laughs>
0: He is. He's great. And he's good in um, The Purge also. Um, and I think I love that he I love when big actors do smaller movies like this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he's great. And I've always had a huge crush on him ever since Reality Bites. Um, and he's just even if he didn't have a beautiful sweater on all the way through, I would still love him in this movie. Um, but, yeah. OK, so let's talk about because I got a lot of thoughts about Ethan Hawke that we can say for later. I know. Don't get me started. <laughs> I know, man. Um, We'll have like a sweater corner or something. (laughs) 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 All right. So we are going to read the official synopsis of the movie and then our own synopsis. So, Laura, would you please read the synopsis from the Amazon Blu-ray?
2: Yes. And this was the only thing approximating an official synopsis I could find. Um, Blumhouse has a surprisingly sparse website. So if this is not official, uh, I am sorry. Ten years ago, true crime writer Ellison Oswald made his reputation with a best-selling account of a notorious murder. Now, desperate to replicate success of his first book, he moves his family into a home where the previous occupants were brutally executed and a child disappeared. Hoping to find inspiration in the crime scene, in the home Ellison discovers a ca- a cache oh boy a cache of terrifying home movies, <laughs> unwittingly opening the door into a nightmarish mystery.
0: Nice. I feel like that's a pretty fair summary. Yeah, there, well, I, there was like an
2: article yeah. missing somewhere in there, and it threw me off. So I quest, mm. I question its authenticity, but you know,
0: <laughs> we're going with. Hey, it. you know what? Blumhouse make your synopsis is more readily available, right. and then we won't have this problem. Exactly, you know? exactly. Um, I guess that's part of the budget cutting. That <laughs> yeah, know. they just don't have any <laughs> marketing. I know, no synopsis. <laughs> yeah, not a square to spare. Okay, so this is our version of the synopsis. <clears throat> True crime writer Ellison Oswalt, in his perfect sweater, relocates his family as he attempts to write his latest novel about a murdered family and their missing daughter. After a string of literary failures, he is desperate to achieve the fame of his first book and makes questionable decisions without consulting his wife, like moving them into the house where these murders took place. After finding a mysterious box in the attic containing 8mm home movies of families being murdered, Ellison begins to hear strange noises in his house. As the mystery unfolds, Ellison uncovers a string of murders involving a pagan deity named Bagul. As his paranoia grows, he realizes he has put his family in the crosshairs of this killer and moves his family back to their other gigantic house. The home videos follow him along with extended cuts of each murder, revealing the killers to be the missing children of each family aided by Bagul. As it dawns on him that his move has put his family in the chain of murders, he also realizes he's been drugged by his daughter, who proceeds to murder the family and disappear into the home movies with Bagul.
2: That seems about right to me. Definitely. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Hitting the questionable decision making, all the things that will emerge as themes here. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. I accidentally wrote um, Patton Oswalt in the synopsis the first time. Which um... this
1: movie would have been even better. Oh, I know. As good as it is now, trying to just him in this. In the, I can see it lead. really
2: well in my head with the sweater and the glasses and I, mm. his his oh, yeah. his late uh, wife. What is uh, was a true crime author. She wrote that mm-hmm. I'll be gone in the dark about the Golden State Killer, and that sort of paved the way for catching him. That's your yeah, true yeah. crime corner here for the day.
1: <laughs> he actually, yeah, he actually did a pretty good dramatic turn in a movie. I think it was called Big Fan. Hmm. It was about like a obsessed sports fan, and he was not really a not really a comedy. He was quite good. I, in I did yeah. hear about um, that,
2: but I didn't see it because I just no. didn't really want to. But I will at some point.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and so fun fact: the character was named after. Patton Oswalt oh really and and yeah and the Ellison is a reference to another author whose name Harlan Harlan Ellison Ellison. yes Yes. oh that's funny that's funny but to be honest I called him Ethan Hawke throughout this entire movie because Mm -hmm. I just love him so much so he is it is Ethan Hawke yeah um so let's do our feelings check-in how do we feel when we're watching this movie um Mike do you want to go first
1: scared <laughs> very very scared yes. uh, no I think it's I think this is such a, a great fucking horror movie mm-hmm. um, putting aside the reasons you know we're covering it for the show Sinister is just one of the best original horror movies of the past 10 years mm-hmm. I really think that it belongs in the same conversation with things like the Babadook the witch it follows even get out mm-hmm. um, it's just like like you said about Ethan Hawke it's tremendously well acted Um, not just from like the horror bits, but just like the interactions between, um, you know Ethan Hawke and Julie uh, Juliet Rylance who plays his wife between Mm -hmm. him and Mm -hmm. James Ransone who plays deputy. I love him so much. I do too. There's just like. Like they just play so well off one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um the eight millimeter, you saw the eight millimeter in here, it adds this like sense of reality to it while not boxing it into the structure of a found footage movie, mm-hmm. which by two thousand twelve it had kinda like hit its peak and had started the crest downward um because you were definitely getting like the rinse wash repeat formula of what you could do within a found footage movie mm-hmm. with some exceptions like the last exorcism which i do hope we get to one day because i firmly believe that the dude from that movie should have had patrick wilson's career because <laughs> um, patrick <laughs> wilson is a just not my oh, thing. oh yeah. Um, I find him
2: hunky, but, but we don't need to get into that. I don't to, Yeah,
1: he I don't need to get kicked sorry off. Sorry to be
2: triggering, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, but what's amazing in watching it last week in preparation is how pre this movie is. Mm-hmm. It's really at the heart of it, it's this examination of like manipulated media, and now we live in an era where you have doctored footage and deep fakes. And it becomes really difficult to get a complete picture of the world around us through the media. Um, it sometimes it feels impossible to know who to trust. Mm-hmm. Which, hey, we're talking paranoia today. Yeah. Um, and while it doesn't go like full headlong into this, because this movie does predate um, things like serial, it really does shine a light on the true crime phenomenon as entertainment. Yes. Mm-hmm which I think would be a fascinating discussion in and of itself and maybe a side Mm -hmm. episode um, at some point. Because really, like...
2: (sighs) I have a lot of thoughts on it if you ever want to talk about (laughs) it.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think we can do this someday. And I realize that there are specific reasons why some especially women are drawn to true crime Mm -hmm. i know like my wife has watched a lot of true crime in the past saying like she likes the resolution Mm -hmm. at the end of it she likes feeling like okay this is the case and this is this is why it was resolved but you know we are often taking these really horrific real world events and using them as a way to entertain one another
3: Mm
1: -hmm. and it's This movie kind of predates that phenomenon a little bit, but it's a nice, it's kind of a cool thing to look at. From a, we'll talk about it more in a little bit about my struggles from a clinical standpoint Mm. in watching it. Um, But I think that that also ends up being one of the strengths of the movie. Mm -hmm. Plus, totally bitching cardigan. Oh man, cannot. This will be a cardigan appreciation. It's
0: got the elbow patches, guys. Yeah. And cable knit. Like everything you want in a sweater and it's on Ethan Hawke's body. I know. And he doesn't
2: change it once during the movie. (laughs) No, he doesn't. That whole week he's just just pounding whiskey and and stress stress sweating into that sweater. And, you know, it just makes it better.
0: It really does, yeah. My feelings, Chuck, I I will revisit Ethan Hawke. That's a feeling that I have in this movie. (laughs) My feeling? Ethan (laughs) Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah, Yeah. I'm feeling it. Yeah, Laura, what about you? (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, I agree with everything Mike said from a critical perspective. I really have always, since I saw it, which I saw in either 2012 or 2013, um, I've adored it, and it's a movie I go back to. It's definitely on the comfort horror movie list for me, which is odd. Mm. It's definitely on the, like, of the movies i find to be comforting in the horror genre it's by far the most disturbing um so i can't quite tell you why this one makes that cut for me i just know i've watched it countless times and every time like the super eight i get really excited in my voice even like every time like that that horrible music like kicks in that like it's like a it's got like a record scratch in it and it's got that like kind of thing going and it's the perfect pairing of, of imagery and sound. And I, those, those super eight films, I just get all scrunched up and I'm going, hee, he, and like, I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with me and why I'm having such excitement. Like the lawnmower scare gag is like, I just, oh my God, I look forward to uh. it every time. And every time it's still scary. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm geeking out. I just, I, I mm. genuinely find this movie so well crafted. Um, it's, I mean, I would say it's meticulous from, like I said, the cinematography to the soundtrack to the direction, to the acting it's scary. It's never gratuitous. Even though there's super disturbing imagery in it, it always cuts away before showing you too much. It doesn't bathe in it, mm-hmm. and I think that's why it's so successful. It really crafts a paranoid atmosphere that is up there with like other more famous paranoid movies like R- Rosemary's Baby or The Thing or something like that. It has that what I really think why, you know, this movie was in my head for paranoia is the mood that it crafts is just an excellent iteration of that. So I just Mm -hmm. I just love this friggin movie it makes me feel it makes me it's definitely disturbing and unsettling but it makes me feel good and excited at the same time maybe because it's just such a dang fun good movie and like I don't know like James Ransom all these people are so fun to watch that Mm -hmm. it just is still enjoyable.
0: Yeah, it has those little moments of comedy and that's especially when James Renzone is on. Like just when he says no snakes don't have feet, yeah. just totally deadpan. Yes. <laughs> I just love it. And it just kinda takes the tension off just a little bit, but not enough to like make like a big hearty laugh. Right. It's just like okay, I'm safe. I'm I'm in my house. I'm not in his blue house, but yeah, it's like the use of darkness in this movie is amazing. And I think the house design, like it's just so creepy when he's walking through those houses for something that's literally like he's walking through houses for maybe a fifth of this movie. Yeah, there's just kind of (laughs) looking around. But it's so tense and it's so like there's that sense of like things happening out of the corner of your eye, you know, and it's so well done here. I think Ethan Hawke just delivers. Um, This is I don't know if I would call this comfort horror for me. Um, I think because the, the family murders, I think like go just a little too, too into the too disturbing area for me. Um, but what I love about it and I have gone back to it a couple of times is that I know it's going to scare me and I know it's going to take me out of whatever stress that I'm feeling because I think it is so effective. Um, and I, I love it. I think I like it every time, more every time. Like last night, um, I was watching it and I was watching it with Corey who hadn't ever seen it before. And he was kind of working on some other stuff and he was getting scared. <laughs> um, he, and he kept asking me, like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And, you're like, and then shut we kept, up. He- shut up. Exactly. I was like, well, I could tell you, but I'm not going to, cause it would ruin the whole thing. Also, it would sound dumb if I told you, but it works, you yes. know? Um, but we kept, I kept hearing noises behind me and I was like, oh shit. Um, and like a couple of times it was just my kids who had gone to bed, but they were up. And normally that would take me out and say, okay it's just my kids but in this movie it's like no it's it my works. kids oh, oh no, my God. They,
2: it's my kids i know
0: <laughs> yeah there's that whole like watching this as a parent now i think i kind of see it through a different lens and i don't mean to sound like an asshole when i say that but it's just like i have a different way of connecting with it than i did originally um that makes
2: total sense to me i am as the one amongst you who is not a parent like i definitely i don't think that makes you an asshole at all it's totally fair to have a different perspective <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah i do also i have to say um fred thompson is in this movie and i love him he's a former tennessee senator he's not the party that i would have voted for but he um he's just great and i loved him on um law and order also oh. i dated his nephew a couple of times oh my interesting yeah. did, he play the, not...
2: did he play the did he play
0: the sheriff the sheriff in this yeah he's, yeah he's the sheriff yes. who kind of um like you better, I guess he's functions as the harbinger in this movie, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love him anytime. He, I wish he had done more acting, I think. Um, but yeah, I just love him. He He's great. So I love seeing him pop up here. Um,
1: could I add one, could I add one quick thing too, cause I don't want to forget. Sure. And I forgot to put this in my notes. Like Laura had mentioned the um, audio, the soundtrack mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. and like there's one and it wasn't crafted for the movie, but um, Derrickson adds a piece of music from a band called Boards of Canada, and I think it's that one you're talking about, Lauer, during like the climactic scene where he's like, we gotta get the fuck out of this house, Mm -hmm. and then it plays over the Mm -hmm. end credits. It's a song called Gyroscope, and it's got that funky drumming, and the... um, Yeah, and and the voice in the background, and it, to me, is the most perfect choice of music for any horror movie in the past 20 years. It's so good. It's a try I've listened to like over and over again on my own. Um, and that's not even mentioning Christopher Young's score. And funny, I'm recording another show after this where it's like Another Christopher Young score, so it's Uh back-to-back today. But his score, his incidental music, and this is, like, also... Wonderful. I mean, he scored a ton of horror movies from, like, the first couple of Hellraisers to uh, Freddy's Revenge. Um, And I think he's maybe underappreciated as far as, like... Really strong horror movie composer. And I
2: noticed while digging around on this, this is total digression. uh, Scott Derrickson, the writer director of this, he one of his first feature films was one like a later Hellraiser sequel,
0: which I just Mm -hmm. thought was
2: funny because usually those are so most of the sequels are so terrible. (laughs) So I I haven't, I don't know if I've seen the one that he made, but it's just interesting to see his lineage and like how he became Mm -hmm. a horror director.
0: Yeah, I think this is really well done, and it's, like, such a simple premise that I think if you didn't have, like, a clear idea of what you want the movie to be, it could easily go campy or boring or way Mm -hmm. over It could have been terrible. it, It could have been awful. It really could have, yeah. And I think the score has a lot to do with that because it's so, like minimal but it really is effective when it needs to be to the point where I don't think about it that much like there's like how much of it is score or drums and how much of it is eight millimeter sound you know I think it, mm-hmm. it's like seamlessly weaves through it's just it's great oh. yeah, yeah I, I get can't.
2: goosebumps I, I get goosebumps thinking about it every time
0: Yeah. Yeah. But there's also like a safe quality to it, I think, too. Like I did not have I don't often have nightmares, but like it didn't. The movie doesn't follow me home, you Mm -hmm. know, so like I get all of my scares out and then I'm like, okay. And I don't know what it is about it. I guess it's just like there's such a clear look to it that I know when I'm in that world and when I'm in my own world. And and I think we talked about this a little in the first episode that horror has different
2: flavors. And this definitely feels like a movie where the director wanted you to be scared in a a way like this scares him. So he it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like he's inflicting something sadistic on you. So it just doesn't. I, and I, I've never been quite able to put my finger on what that line in the sand is. But I, that, mm-hmm. I think that is also why it's ended up on my comfort list, because the it's not like Michael Haneke, like funny games or something mm-hmm. like something that has mm-hmm. that goes really bleak, even though the subject matter is bleak. It just doesn't feel that bleak. And I don't know.
0: No, I think you're right about that, and I think a lot of it is what you mentioned earlier about it cuts away because this could be really exploitative. It could be super gory, yep. and it's not. It is disturbing when you think about it, but like if I don't let myself think about those eight millimeter films, I don't. It doesn't bother me. Um, and fun fact, they didn't show Ethan Hawke the films when until it was time to record. And uh, so all of his reactions to these are real. Oh, and I just imagine that's so fun. <laughs> I, mean, I know it's so yeah. cool. And like, I, I would, I was putting myself in his shoes watching that. Cause I knew that going into watch this watch, um, like we see cutaways and we see like reflections of like especially the net cutting scene mm-hmm. like in his glasses or, exactly yeah yeah and i just imagine like he had to watch the whole thing and one i wonder how detailed those those actual ones are without wanting to watch them and just imagine like when he watches the lawnmower scene that is just Uh, i was like oh my god i (laughs) I can't imagine not knowing that was coming Uh, as the actor in the scene you know oh it's so fun that just little details like that make me i know very happy (laughs) it's so effective Yeah. yeah Um, all right. So we've talked about how we feel, um, Ethan Hawke. And so why did we choose this for our episode on paranoia? And Laura, you had suggested this movie. So do you want to kick us off here?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I did originally suggest it, because I knew we had... Although we
0: all heartily jumped on board. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, I think because we all love this movie. And it, ha- uh-huh. it had been a little while since I watched it, and I knew we were covering Paranoia. So I, in my head, it, like I said, it felt like a very paranoid movie. Watching it again, um, as I mentioned before, I don't think it's as obvious as it was in my memory, Um, however the atmosphere is incredibly paranoid and we're basically watching the central character become infected with a paranoid thought that he feels compelled Mm -hmm. to follow through to its logical conclusion Um, so to some degree I regretted a little bit choosing this for the theme of paranoia because it was a little more challenging to think about it in that context but Mm -hmm. um, it's It may not be a perfect fit, but I do ultimately think it's an interesting one. And there are definite themes of paranoia that are worth talking about here. It's just not as on the
0: nose as I remembered it. Um, So let's make it work. Yeah. And I think not every movie we're going to pick is going to be directly on the nose of everything. And I think that's kind of an important thing when we're talking about our experiences to this because – we're all going to take different things from different movies and kind of unpacking the connections that we could have, even though they're not so obvious, I think kind of helps us understand, like, how we consume media. Because um, I I didn't necessarily see paranoia, but I also think that's because I don't have a, like, clear understanding of what paranoia is. I think I kept, like, veering into anxiety territory. Um, so I'm excited to hear, Mike, you talk about, um, like, to, like explaining the concept of paranoia a little more but i see a lot of just like it there's this sense of dread in this movie of being like constantly on edge um like and i think we see like a cumulative effect of that over the course of the movie like there is a difference in when he's talking to deputy so-and-so in the beginning of the movie and in the last scene and i think that's an interesting like picture of the effects of living in this state and never getting out of it um And just not trusting your surroundings Um, and like trying to control things that are not in your control, which I think goes back to the true crime thing, because he is like we're also seeing this like true crime as entertainment, but also like citizens trying to solve these murders, you know, or like putting themselves in the place of detectives just as amateurs. And I think there's kind of that feeling of not necessarily being able to trust authority to protect us that I think kind of plays in there. Uh, Mike, do you have any more thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I, You know, for me, watching this movie now more from a clinical standpoint, it was definitely a struggle in terms of, like, well, how are we going to fit this into the episode? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I tend to, like—and I think this is to my detriment a little bit—like, I tend to, like, when I'm watching— The movies now, either whether it's for my writing for a project I'm doing or for this show, I tend to look at it from a really clinical standpoint and try to, like, make things fit into the symptomology overall. And what's interesting is when I'm actually doing therapy and counseling people, you know, I always remind my clients that I'm like, look, you're not your diagnosis. Like, you're going to get one because the insurance company demands it. But at the end of the day, like, we're going to treat the person, mm-hmm. you know, like, that's that's really, like, my concern is you as a person overall. So I find myself, like, for the show, getting, like, way more hung up on diagnoses than I would if it was less obvious. I mean, obviously, if a, someone comes in with a really obvious, like, oh, man, you have major depressive disorder, that's what we're going to attack. Mm-hmm. But that's not always what happens when people come in. Um, so here, I'm like, can we make this fit? Let me try to maybe of this and I don't know like I know this part's not on screen but it feels like and then I'm like fuck it like let's just let it rip mm-hmm. you know I mean like let's look at it and with, I think what is awesome about this particular topic and I think why it's such a good fit um, is because and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a little bit it's like all of us have some sort of paranoid thoughts mm-hmm. right now whether it's like you know myself and some things, Laura, Jen. Whether it's that person standing behind you right now, and,
2: yeah, with the knife. Um, yeah, you know, we all. Oh,
1: no. Yeah, so we. All oh no, I have, know that guy.
0: He's cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, all
1: right. So we all, to a certain degree, you know, and paranoia ties very much into like conspiracy theories, which mm-hmm. is very relevant. What do you right mean? Well, we've
0: got a red string <laughs> board, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: With, you know, with with QAnon becoming this major. Political
2: Ooh, uh, force. I want to set
0: myself on fire. Oh my
1: god. Yeah, we're definitely looking at moving to England. Yeah, right. as soon um, as I can expatriate.
2: God, give me a yeah. ticket yeah. out of here.
1: <laughs> so, so I find it like it's going to be pretty interesting to like discuss this particular yes.
2: subject. Yeah. I definitely have yeah. a lot of thoughts that we could that like once you get through um, some of the more mm-hmm. clinical aspects, I think we'll pair nicely mm-hmm. with those like a nice yeah. fine wine pairing. Oh.
0: Yeah. Or a whiskey, Mm -hmm. a nice aged whiskey, an aged whiskey, and uh, a (laughs) and a sweater. (laughs) Yeah, like an aged whiskey and a sweater. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, can't beat it, you know. Um, So, Mike, let's talk a little bit about what paranoia actually is.
1: All right. So, up until recently, paranoia was paired almost exclusively with like schizophrenia. Mm Uh, and in the in the d s m five which is this um diagnostic manual that we use, that grouping was removed, and paranoia is con- kind of considered its own disorder with its with different levels of severity overall um, would putting the research together for this and like looking at the diagnostic criteria like it looked like paranoid personality disorder or delusional disorder would be if not where Ellison was exactly where he would have been heading if his daughter didn't chop him up into little bits mm. at the end of the movie, which at that point, to be fair, if you're paranoid about being murdered by yeah, someone maybe. and then they murder you, yeah. maybe it's not. Yeah, really Just because they're just, because you're paranoid, um,
2: doesn't mean they're not after you. Yeah. Blah, blah, uh, oh, right. That's <laughs> right.
0: <Q>, Q311 <laughs> so, playing. And okay, I'll stop. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but so, i did have that question
0: because if it's really happening are you paranoid or am i jumping ahead
1: i, I think we're jumping yeah we might be because my sh- sh- i just think i need more time to kind of bullshit an answer for that. <laughs> so uh maybe by the time we get to the burbs because i'm uh, definitely definitely on the fence when it comes to that overall yes um yes. i think it depends a bit on how marked that the symptomology is and how much you really how much you're um, experiencing it overall. Mm. So the reason why paranoid personality disorder has been kind of removed from the schizophrenic label is because if people that have paranoia may behave completely functional and fine in other areas of their life. It's just this one area that they're displaying the symptomology and where they're having difficulty where schizophrenic behavior is definitely marked by random and reoccurring appearances of odd and definably eccentric behavior overall. So, um, so they kind of remove that from, From They kind of remove the two labels from one another Mm. For lack of a better Um, So what is the Christ So basically to define paranoia It's this pervasive mistrust In others Mm. And there's this belief that Even when other people are helping you Their intentions are malevolent And they're doing it for their own Nefarious purposes Mm. Like you basically cannot trust Others around you Like someone or something is out to get Mm. you
2: As I understand that, it makes it a very difficult thing to treat because, you know, there's an inherent mistrust built in with therapists, doctors, you know, so it makes it Mm -hmm. a very difficult thing to receive treatment for.
1: Yeah. And we're only going to do a little bit about, I think, this week, because we're going to cover this for two month, two episodes... We'll dive into the treatment a little bit, but I think that'll be more of the focus for me when we get to the next two movies we do. Mm. But you're right, like, that's exactly like last week we talked about EMDR as a treatment, and that is more about the process. Like, there's a specific way to implement that um, to make it effective and make it work. Mm. The treating someone with this is far, far more about the therapeutic relationship Mm. and building that trust. Um, And this is the kind of disorder that you can build that trust with your client and then maybe you say something that they perceive a certain way and you're all the way back to ground square one Mm. at that point. Mm -hmm. So it can be difficult. So some of the signs of it overall, and to get a diagnosis, you need to show like four of these or more. Um, there's a suspicion without basis that others are exploiting and harming mm. you. And I think the without basis is the thing there, Jen, yeah. to your point. Um, because being drugged, tied up, and then chopped up with an axe, like, you have basis to believe at that point yeah. that someone is out there fair to all. Fair um, enough, fair enough. yeah. There's this obsession with the thought that your friends and loved ones can't be trusted. I.e., your little girl, who a month before was just painting on the walls, and now she's uh, painting uh, and in your blood. Now she's painting your walls <laughs> with blood. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the but you, this thought, like out of nowhere, that your friends and loved ones you, they no longer can be trusted. And taking it a step further, like you don't want to confide in anybody because there's this this overwhelming fear that whatever you say can be used against you Mm. whether that is brought up to your face or whether there's more of a grand conspiracy um that people are going to come after you at that point you find hidden threats and like really innocuous remarks um you bear grudges uh even when the grudges should have long since passed you perceive these attacks in your character when they're not there, and you're very quick to like counterattack a person. Mm. So you think that someone might make like a general statement, but you perceive it like they're cutting to the very core of who you are as a person in a critical way, and you just come right at them. Uh, and finally, you have these recurrent suspicions about the fide- fidelity or lack thereof of your partner. Mm. Um, so those are the symptoms that make up paranoid personality disorder. And again, like very similar to like delusional disorder. Delusional disorder is marked by these thoughts of grandiosity Mm -hmm. or that you have these powers or that people in power are trying to reach out to you so you might think that like oh I can control the TV with my brain Mm -hmm. um, and I can affect the way people are or oh there's like a number of people that are trying to correspond with me because I'm some sort of uber Uber man Mm -hmm. Um, but in other areas of your life like you're not affected like you can go to work you can go to school you can have a, a loving relationship with some people to a certain degree but if they fall under this category of of what you're paranoid about that's where it becomes like really difficult and the symptoms are not the result of like schizophrenia bipolar disorder, depressive disorder with psychotic features or any other psychotic disorder that's out there. I think that
2: probably yeah. makes this all rather hard to diagnose and why you've seen so yes. many literature changes around it. Because mm-hmm. when you're bipolar and you're psychotic bipolar, like, you, you know, in, a, in an extreme manic state, you can have similar delusions of grandiosity. Um, it's mm-hmm. just there's so much that get, there's overlap. And so it can be very hard to tease that mm-hmm. out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking as you were reading those symptoms, I was like, well, I've experienced a lot of that probably related to my PTSD. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I've also just like being a human in the world. I think I've like experienced a lot of those things. And I was thinking like, I guess there is a line where it starts to negatively affect the rest of your life. And then a part where, yeah, I I wonder if she's talking, saying shit about me behind my back. But then I'm just going to have that thought and carry on. Like, I think there's a difference.
1: I think it it has to last for like a, a specific amount of time like longer than 1 month I believe mm. is what it is. Um so cuz I think we all randomly have those thoughts like is this like you said like is this person shit talking mm-hmm. me um and they probably are, because that's just human <laughs> yeah. human nature. Like, we're a bunch of assholes. Yeah. Um, and it turns out it usually be... doesn't
0: matter as much as you think it's going right. to. Exactly. I think that's the difference exactly. between, like, social,
2: social anxiety or, like, thinking that your coworkers hate you versus, like, mm-hmm. thinking that person you just passed on the street is whispering to somebody mm-hmm. and saying mm-hmm. that they hate you and that they want to kill you or something like
0: that. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Right. So... You know, if Ellison was in front of me as a client, first, I would, again, compliment him on his sweater. (laughs) Um, But then, you know, like, I don't think that it is something where I'd be like, oh, yeah, you definitely have like paranoid personality disorder. Mm -hmm. But what we might look at are those pervasive pervasive thoughts that he's starting to experience and examining where they're coming from and where what they're rooted in, which we'll talk about in a little bit Mm -hmm. when we talk about how paranoia develops in someone
0: um well and one of the other things you said that i'm really curious about is conspiracy theories and how that kind of plays into paranoia
1: let's do that so and Laura, was that where you were going with this like were we kind of headed down the same path right now when we were talking about because you mentioned you wanted to add a bunch to it too yeah
2: no i mean a little bit um i think that there's there's a way to connect it to that um I think it's more of The discussion about The media we consume and how that Impacts us Mm -hmm. is kind of more where I was Mm -hmm. going With it but I would love to hear your thoughts Specifically on conspiracy theory
1: Yeah so this First article I pulled up was from uh, 2009 Psychology Today the September October Edition which Interesting enough like featured on Featured Alex Jones which oh my God this guy's been around for this (sighs) long I wish he would Uh, go away
2: Yeah, I know.
1: Like, um, so what we see here is Ellison and... sinister, kind of making all these loose connections and building them into something that is larger. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent all of us have a bit of a conspiracy theorist. We're all a little bit of the lone gunman from the X-Men. X-Files. This is... X-Files, (laughs) thing. Although I I do want to see
2: the lone gunman in uh, the X-Men. That would be fun, too. (laughs) Yeah, they would have, like, microfiche powers. Yes, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's fun.
1: So studies have shown, like, 40% 40% of Americans believe that the government is covering up information about UFOs. Which it turned out recently is true. It's true, according yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: to the New York
0: Times yeah. anyway. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right. And, and Independence um, Day. Uh, Almost 70%, yes. <laughs> President Pullman would definitely not have I know, up man, I love him. Sorry,
0: go ahead.
1: Carry on. 70% of Americans believe that John F. Kennedy was killed via a consp- secret conspiracy that actually plotted out his assassination. About 30% of Americans, somewhere around that number, believe the U.S. government had something to do with 9-11, whether it's like detonating the Twin Towers or allowing it to happen um, so that we could start this war on terror. So... All of us, even those that aren't necessarily conspiracy theorists, like do believe that, like, yeah, like we're not getting all the information that we're supposed to. And the thing about a conspiracy theorist is they tend to have, Alex Jones, this really inflated <laughs> view of themselves mm-hmm. and their abilities that really the evidence of their lives don't bear out. And this feeling of grandiosity. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but fuck it. Grandiosity Stems from, like, (laughs) thank you, stems from feeling, like, really powerless. And the act of connecting these thoughts, dots through lines that don't exist, it's a way to make sense of a world they often feel trapped by Mm. or scared of. Mm -hmm. So from the article, it was like, conspiracy theorists exist on a spectrum of mild suspicion to full-on paranoia. And I think we're seeing... Alison Oswalt and Oswald in this and Ethan Hawke and this, he is somewhere in the middle in this overall, mm-hmm. you know, he, in terms of like his inflated view of himself, he insists that he knows better than the detectives and the police that have given up. He is insistent that he can get to the root of it. And the fact is like, aside from his first novel, he's been wrong twice before mm-hmm. and being wrong has had like really dire consequences So these things are based on faulty logic and improper conclusions, yet despite his repeated failures, He's convinced he can crack cases that nobody else can.
0: Yeah, he's like keeps chasing that high of like,
1: mm-hmm. oh, I'm
0: the one who knew all along, and mm-hmm. I'm smarter than everyone yeah. else, and like this is my um, fifteen minutes of fame. Um, that is, he's just going to stretch on and on and on. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's such, the, the thing about conspiracy theories that frustrates me so much is all of the unintended victims because of it. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, like I think about Sandy Hook, and I think mm-hmm. about the trauma that those parents had to face mm-hmm. is just unimaginable and to have this asshole continue to like build on top of that it just to like g- get like views or whatever insidious motives he has and for the people that are like kind of innocently believing like you were saying to just trying to make sense um of an uncontrollable world it just it's so it f- it's so hurtful you know mm-hmm. well i mean
2: just on that that note i was going to say i mean i think I think it's really interesting that conspiracy thought has become as mainstream as it has, because even as far mm-hmm. back as 2009, Alex Jones was seen as a fringe character. And now Infowars has mm-hmm. like a press pass to the White House. And you could argue, I mean, and and you are you know, successfully so that some of it is because of our current political climate and that mm-hmm. what they have ushered in when opening the doors to it. But I do think the powerlessness thing is interesting because I think the um, a, a lot of people in this country, feel utterly powerless and utterly trapped in right now mid pandemic coming up on this election i think you know it it, it couldn't be the you know the more primed for generating an almost obsessive level of this thought and there's almost kind of like a mass hysteria element that's happening Mm -hmm. with the QAnon thing that's I mean it really is destroying lives there's a lot of people who no longer speak to their parents that have gotten divorces it really does shatter relationships when you choose this mindset over all else it becomes like a singular obsession or a cipher through which you see the world and it's really
0: really disturbing (laughs) so yeah Yeah. And I think it's like, Mike, what you were saying, like it's human nature to want to kind of follow the threads of that. Um, Right. But that's when you need the people in authority who actually know that. "No, No, no, I'm just kind of pulling on this string to try to get some views or something like you can't do that. We need to be able to trust the information that we're getting every day and we need to have reliable sources where we can go and get that information because that just feeds it. And I think like the average person who's just watching TV and clicks on something doesn't have this like sinister intent, but because it's being fed so much, that's why it keeps building and building and building if you get I don't know what the term is it's not confirmation bias or maybe it is it's like the more that you hear somebody try to disprove what you're talking about the more you believe it and it's like reminded me of what you were saying like your therapist says one wrong thing and then all of a sudden you don't believe anything they've said
1: there's a psychological construct and I I don't have the name of it at my fingertips but and you see this a lot like it it explains a lot of MAGA behavior Mm -hmm. behavior where you get invested in something is the truth and once you're dug in, you're unable to apologize, you're unable to think differently, because to do so would to admit that you were egregiously wrong. Not just wrong, but like egregiously wrong. So a lot of times you'll see this, especially in our current political climate, where persons that have invested themselves in say the cult of Donald Trump will say, Well, I don't care what he says or what he does. He supports me, even though the evidence is contrary to that. Mm. So I there's nothing he would do that would make me not support him. And I mean I the example I can think of this week that was just grotesque was uh Herman Cain, who is the former um chairman of the um of the GLP passed away from COVID, and we're it's probably safe to say he got it when he was unmasked. Uh, at the Tulsa convention, that Trump was con- basically committed to having, no matter what, and so he dies from this, and his family is still running his account on Twitter, showing Trump, and it's like, and I'm like, dude, aren't you dead? I think I even like tweeted. I couldn't help it. I'm like, didn't you? Yeah. Die? Why is this happening? And the family is committed to supporting this this guy that basically killed him and he he was out
2: there while sick telling people not to wear masks Mm -hmm. and stuff like this he was being you know because they're all i mean you know and and the q people they they see everything that trump says is like it's he's saying things in code you know Mm -hmm. oh that's not what he means it's actually a a code for you know don't worry jfk Mm -hmm. is coming to save all the kidnapped children or whatever you know it's Mm -hmm. it's completely the dog whistle yeah there's so many layers to it that they have built to rationalize their own ideas you know and it's a, you can't right. you yeah. can't argue with that logic because everything is and, the opposite day mm-hmm.
1: and jen to your point like when you see like there's few words that get my blood boiling more than when you see like false flag mm-hmm. um <laughs> yep. because it is always steeped in these national tragedies whether it's parkland whether it's sandy hook
3: mm-hmm. whether
1: it's you know, real sex trafficking that hurts untold an untold number of people. And you see these like, well, it's fake. Like they literally want you to provide a corpse, Uh these grieving families, a corpse. And yeah, it's really heartbreaking to see. And it's really, it's really disgusting to see it as well. And it just kind of, yeah, you know, you don't know, and you don't know what You feel helpless to prevent it because of the measures that we have in place that still protect that kind of speech. And I know that like Jones now is being sued and those suits have been gone, are able to go forward. And you just kind of hope that you that he'll eventually be sued into oblivion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the hope. It's like you can't argue because arguing just feeds it. And like there's a there's clearly logical fallacies in a lot of these like conspiracy theories. But then like when you point those out, it's like the person's like, okay, well, but there's there must be something we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, that seems off to me, not because it's blatantly wrong, but because there's just some piece that I don't know right. yet. So if I just keep digging and keep connecting red string all across my giant board. Sorry, I bumped into my mic because I'm getting so animated talking about this. <laughs> um <laughs> like then I'll surely find the answer to prove that I was right all along and not that I believed this hideous thing that hurt other people.
2: Yeah, it's not that the right. universe is out of my control and that we're all suffering for, you know, and I, I think that's what's interesting about conspiracy theories is there's usually a seed of truth mm-hmm. in that, in mm-hmm. that, like, there are things the government is doing that hurt you. There, you know, there there are things you don't have control over, so you create this um, fallacy of, of some of meaning when there is no yeah. meaning and that sometimes mm-hmm. the universe is just random and cruel, you know, it's a mm-hmm. lot easier yeah. to deal with that no matter how you have to contort yourself and who you
0: have to hurt to make it, mm-hmm. you know, stand up. Cause you and, can just convince yourself that that person is your enemy now and then back right. away. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And Jed, you talked about, you know, listening to the advice of experts. And I know Laura, you've done a ton of research and writing in terms of what to expect from COVID and how to prevent it and how to battle it. Um, And what's really unfortunate and one of the unintended consequences of the internet and Google and being able to, like, basically find all this information at the touch of a fingertip, at the touch of a couple, like, button presses, is... Everybody feels that they're an expert mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. That if they read a couple articles from like WebMD or whatever, you know, they're able to like call themselves an expert, and they don't. Ha- or they can pick and choose where their experts come from. So if there are 99 scientists saying, "Look, climate change is real, and it's what we knew to pre- what we need to do to prevent it." And you have one scientist who says that's a bunch of hogwash. Let's talk about demon sperm. Mm-hmm. Then you can say, well, that expert says that demon sperm is real, but you know, ho- but climate change isn't. So I'm going to follow that one because they're a quote unquote expert too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the real unattended negative consequences of the internet. Um, yeah, I
2: fully believe we weren't ready scary. for the internet. That the human brain wasn't ready for right. this information dump. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it uh, you know it's a double-edged sword. But we were not ready. We were not enlightened enough to handle it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I heard um, a while ago, I was reading about something called this article called the CSI effect on juries and that because they had seen so much forensic evidence on shows like CSI, like when lawyers or defense could not produce that kind of evidence, they thought, well, why aren't you showing me this? Clearly it exists because I saw it on TV. And why can't you line this scar up with this pattern on like this bench thing? And it points directly to the killer. And so there's this level of like, it's just the trust is slow slowly eroded and I don't know if there's necessarily one point that we could like pick to say this was the turning point. In my job I've been doing a lot of research and as I've been doing it, I was like, oh, I was never really taught to research things. Like I have kind of figured out on my own what like kind of primary sources to trust and what if it seems fishy, then see if you can find it three other places. And if you can't, then it probably is fishy. And I think uh, we just don't. Yeah, we don't know how to do that. We don't teach know?
2: critical thinking. Not really. We really don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least they didn't when I was a kid. The current uh, generations that are controlling the world seem incapable of it. And it's uh, yeah. it's. It's very unsettling.
0: So like when we're looking at paranoia and how it begins, like what are maybe some of the early stages of paranoia or some of like the warning signs we might see?
1: So basically what you might find is a person making too many connections to coincidences and they're finding these patterns in Mm. what seems like these random or insignificant events. And they start, you know, Connecting dots that aren't really there. Um, I pulled up an article from uh, Translational uh, Psychiatry, and it talks about the brain chemistry of paranoia Mm. and really what is going on there. And I'll link Uh, that
0: in our show notes.
1: Okay, excellent. Um, Basically, what some research is pointing to is that there's this overabundance of dopamine being released from the mm-hmm. brain at that point because dopamine is that drug that basically it regulates your emotions, your happiness. It can kind of, it's all acts as kind of like a reward based system mm-hmm. for the human brain and for the mind at that point. Uh, but what's happening is like too much of it's going out. So there's this dysregulation in the subcortical dopamine system. God, I am definitely not a scientist. So <laughs> bear with me. Um, I'm with you. And You know, you've basically, you see this happen, like they're making the connections, like a large number of schizophrenic and psychotic patients see this happen. It's also, to a certain degree, why why nightmares can also happen, Mm. like doing some research for the Elm Street series I'm covering elsewhere, is that the reason why in Nightmares or Very Vivid Dreams... It seems like all these weird things seem normal is because of this kind of phenomenon and hmm. why nightmares also mirror what we see in schizophrenics or psychotics sometimes. Same thing
2: with uh, LSD um, trips, things of that nature. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. And next, when we talk about. The brain chemistry next week. We'll definitely talk about um, drug-induced paranoia Ooh, because you know fun. definitely because there's <laughs> a lot on that. Every other article I found on uh, causes of paranoia was like cocaine. So <laughs> I'm like, we'll oh, bookmark <laughs> yeah. those. Um, so the altered transmission of this dopamine basically the brain starts like wanting more and more of it. So it's like, oh you know, like this person didn't use their directional signal, therefore like JFK is alive and well in a bunker six doors down. Mm. Um, They start making connections and they start adding heavy weighting to certain things they see as evidence and connections that aren't there. And that's why you can function mostly normal in society because you're like, these other things that I'm not really concerned about, like they're fine. I'm not worried about them. But this thing that I'm fixated on where that connection is like then that's where the paranoia starts to come in and it could also lead to a greater number of delusions Mm. and the difference between a hallucination and a delusion like hallucinations tend to be auditory or visual where you see persons that aren't there or hear things that aren't there where delusions are more you have this feeling of like having superpowers or being able to control people with your mind Mm. um I remember one client said that like he would sit in his truck, turn on a certain radio station, and broadcast his thoughts to specific workers at Dunkin' Donuts, and they would like basically follow his commands, or that the guys that run the show Duck Dynasty were communicating through him through the classified sections of... You know, and it's... <laughs> I will be honest, it's really hard to not... To what you just did. Right, yeah. You know? As soon as Duck Dynasty gets
2: mentioned, you know, you can't get know. To it.
1: And I found like treating this person as an intern, I'm like, this is like way above my. <laughs> Pay grade right now, mm-hmm. but I'm also super fascinated, and I'm like, I want to hear more. Yeah. Um, but so look, the like thi-
0: future Jen or like Jen in her 20s used to hear a song on the radio, and I just knew my crush was thinking about yeah. me in that moment. Or like you
1: know? I made that song come on. Like I exactly. Wanted to hear this We've song. all had those moments, um, you
2: know, where you yeah. you think yeah. to it's yourself, the universe. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so, we we are primed to see patterns and make connections, and I yeah. think this is what we're seeing is like it's just a dysregulation of that. It's it's going hog wild, mm-hmm. you know. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And what we found, too, we talked more uh, a little bit about the symptomology and how they have difficulty relating to the people in their lives that are close to them. And they start to feel that they're out to get them or mm-hmm. they can't be trusted. So this this dysregulation of the dopamine also alters the way they perceive social interactions. social interactions. They interpret them differently. And that might account for the suspicion they have against others or perceiving these otherwise benign statements as threats to them.
0: Um, So when I took a CRT, um, which is culturally responsive teaching, workshop a while ago, and we talked a little bit about dopamine, but we also talked about um, the amygdala, and she would say... Mm -hmm. Um, Your amygdala is hijacked when you hear specific language and she talked she was talking about using deficit ideology in um, like if I had said if I read a paper that you wrote and I said actually this is pretty good like your brain hears the actually told me you expected it to be bad so that yeah. she would talk about that that being the pattern of oh I'm no good this person yeah. doesn't like me you know yeah the amygdala
2: is the center of fear in the brain and uh, it's right. it's the like primal sp- like fight or flight thing it releases mm-hmm. the the adrenaline and the stuff that um you know makes you feel afraid so that's uh, it's one yeah. of my favorite words also I just love saying amygdala
0: yeah, she would say, your student's amygdala is hijacked. They're not going to learn anymore today. Right. And it's I'd saying, just, like, don't like, stress oh. the kids
2: out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's smart. Mm-hmm. It's very smart.
0: It is, yeah. And it's just intentionally thinking about what, the way you're talking. And, I mean, I think that's maybe a seed of what we're talking about. But, but that's where those patterns start a lot of times. It's right. like that's the seed of truth, that maybe I got a bad grade on a paper last time, and so now I'm carrying mm-hmm. that forward into my teacher doesn't like me, and I'm terrible, you know?
1: Right. And and that happens, and we get, I mean, even without paranoia, we often have that kind of negative thinking. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, if you didn't have the ability to self-regulate and you didn't, you know, have the emotional vocabulary to know, hey, maybe don't respond right now, you know, that like, those, little, those little gating mechanisms, I imagine, again, no expert here, are a little less uh, there <laughs> when you have, like, yeah. paranoid personality disorder or something like that. Yeah. yeah,
1: when you have that, you would see that as, like, I can't trust this person. Like they're definitely sending me some sort of signal that shows mm-hmm. like they're sliding me right now. And therefore you would kind of attack them at that point.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. I think about it. Like when I've sent a text to someone and they have not immediately responded and I mm-hmm. saw some, I was probably a meme, but it was like your brain fills in the gaps in that narrative of why they haven't, um, responded, And mine always jumps to, oh, they hate me. I'm terrible. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always think that so much. But um, I was listening to a podcast a while ago and one of the hosts said something that has really stuck with me. And she said, I am happier when I give other people the benefit of the doubt. And yes. I was thinking about that. I just kept turning it over in my head and I was like, yeah, but they don't necessarily deserve it. And then I thought, but no, that's she's saying I'm happier, you know, like until yeah. I have that reason to think that they're they have ill intent or they do hate me. Then like it just makes my day better when I'm not filling all of those gaps in the narrative mm-hmm. in with my like negative talk you know mm-hmm. and that's
1: it's yeah. exhausting to do yeah, that it I mean, it's exhausting and yeah. i think
0: that's
2: kind of like a cognitive behavioral t- you know technique would be to say like every time one of those thoughts occurs do you think what is the alternative like you mm-hmm. know say Maybe yeah da, 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 da. and then it's about like training rewiring your brain to yes to think that way automatically versus the automatic reflex being this person is out to mm-hmm. m- you know murder me or is talking shit right now right huh? yeah on that note yeah. <laughs> uh, how do we see this issue represented in the movie? Maybe, Mike, if you want to yeah. jump into
1: it. Well, I want to, you know what? Do you mind if I step back for a minute? Because I, I feel like I've kind of dominated the conversation here for like 10 minutes, and I want to kind of gather some thoughts, if that's all right. Totally, sure.
0: yeah. Well one of the things that stood out to me um in this movie other than that beautiful sweater was like the relationship between Ethan Hawke and his wife and um Mike you were mentioning like distrusting the people around you and thinking they're out to get you and I don't necessarily think we see it to that level like I don't think he thinks his wife is out to get him but he does keep asking her are you on my side? I need you on my mm-hmm. side. I can't do this without you on my side. And just the fact that he well, I mean, it's a dick move to move um, them into that house to begin with. And when oh, they're yeah. having that fight at the end, I just wanted to smack him in the face. So, like, so hard. You know what she fucking meant. You know <laughs> that she wasn't asking right. about that house. She's asking in general. And no, there's not a difference between the murder happening in the backyard and the spot that I'm standing in right now. I just. Ugh. But I think there's that level of distrust that you can see in him throughout the movie that he does not trust her to know that he needs to do these things for himself
1: i think the difference too between say him and christian in that situation when ethan hawk is arguing semantics is like you can tell that as he's arguing it he knows he's wrong yep. <laughs> like he's like i know he's like this is like a desperation hail mary mm-hmm. i know i don't have a leg to yeah. stand on i'm just gonna throw it out there where christian would have been like well, why wouldn't it be a big deal? I think hung in a tree we're in the bedroom. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. You, he would have Why are you mad at me? Right.
2: And I and I have some thoughts on that about his character because his character is not like a classic paranoic. Like he doesn't have a paranoid personality right. type. Um I I could argue that like, you know, some of the, the relationship troubles, they're all stemming from a different root cause, but the way mm-hmm. that this movie acts on him turns him into like a paranoid shell of himself and um well, it is it is really frustrating. And I would say we could e- easily do this movie on toxic and abusive relationships because their marriage mm-hmm. is really fraught. And I think she's actually a really interesting character in that mm-hmm. she's very forthright. And she's very, you know, she's a she's a really good partner. And he really isn't. And yeah. and to Mike's point, he knows he isn't. And he is like, indul- mm-hmm. he is so aware of how much he sucks throughout this whole movie. And you see him
1: mm-hmm.
2: just and I think that's a really interesting character choice that they made. Um he
1: says at one point like you know she has like our kids have a father who is always home and always around and yes he is physically in the house (laughs) yeah like technically from a technically speaking um yes you are in the home but he has like no presence in their life he doesn't really know Mm. what's going on like it's really telling that like at one point in the movie he looks in his daughter's room and it's like, whoa, like you've gotten really good. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you would, like I would say it to my daughter to encourage her art because she's really talented and wonderful and smart and brilliant. <laughs> it's not that it's like, he's genuinely surprised at how good that she's gotten.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he um, didn't know. Yeah. There's, there's right. a
2: moment also early. I'd say about midway through the film where she brings him coffee. They take a moment yep. with this scene where she's the, makes the French press with mm-hmm. her mom. And I think it's like kind of foreshadowing it, when you see it in retro, respect and know that the daughter is being possessed by bagul Mm -hmm. and all that like it was her you know she goes to the door of his office knocks on the door and says like coffee for you daddy and he goes oh thank you honey like very dismissively and then is immediately on a phone call and shuts the door in her -hmm. her face and it just shows how much he's how little he's paying attention to the details and how little he's paying attention to his children and if he had been he would have probably been able to stop what happens or at Mm -hmm. least have a better shot at it um can I talk a little yeah. bit about how I see paranoia um, yeah, manifesting in this movie? Um, I just wanted to—I wanted to read a quote from Jane, James Ranson's character, Deputy So and So, says this to Ellison, and I think this is the moment in the movie where I, the, the paranoid themes kind of clicked into place in my head. Um, the quote is you know what I think? I think you moved into the, I think you moved yourself into the house of murder victims and immediately set about trying to put yourself in their headspace. And I also think you've begun discovering things about this case that are darker than you were prepared for. Um, and I, I was going to say, like, you know, Ellison, at this point in the film, this is coming in the last fourth, like the fourth act, like right at the head of that part of the movie. Um, he's clearly very shaken by all the Grizzly home movies and the facts that he's deduced about this case. He's you know, he at this point was in the film. It's right after he fell asleep holding the baseball bat and was mm-hmm. like up for mm-hmm. half the night. Um, and here is where we see he really didn't start out as a paranoid character, um, but he has become one. He's really driven by different things than the things you described, Mike, as being, you know, the drivers of a paranoid personality disorder. He's driven by self aggrandizement, a desire for fame and money. Um, and the entire time, as I was saying, we see that he's aware of this and that he knows mm-hmm. better, but his singular obsession with success leads him into places that he's not ready to go. And I think that there's there's some commonality shared with obsession and paranoia and this like fixation mm-hmm. on ideas. Um, and it leads him to make choices that defy his own sense of ethics. They lead him to printing out photos and connecting them with yarn. And it keeps him in this space even when he knows it's eating him alive. Um, I also think that that goes into the theme of what we consume infects us. Uh, Mm -hmm. In this movie, it plays out like very literally in like a cursed film, The Ring, you watch the video and then you're screwed kind of way. Um, On a thematic level, I think it really speaks to the idea that soaking in evil deeds, like watching brutality on film, whether that's true crime or horror, inflicts its own trauma and turns people into like hollowed out husks of themselves, um, but paranoid, basically. Um, we see it in the movie with Allison and we see it with his son who's stricken with night terrors. We see it in his whole family, like tugged to and fro across the country. And then we see it ultimately in the daughter and all the children that are like sort of inhabit the films. Um, that Bagul has been eating and then having them Mm -hmm. murder their own families. Uh, I think that what struck me uh, visually as, as an expression of this theme is when Ethan Hawke is watching the movies and we see the things in his glasses, whether it's the flames of the car or the people's throats being slit. I thought that was also a moment in my head where it clicked into like, there's this infection that's happening with the Mm -hmm. imagery. Um, And uh, when I look at it from that lens, that was a joke I'm sorry no, <laughs> uh, no I, got I it. if you if, if you're listening I did air quotes around the word lens um, <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry I'm just saying no. <laughs> I I'm not sure how I feel about it looking at it from that lens but I do think it's innate and sort of primal fear that we all have like this idea of like cursed images and art and film and it's I think that's really an interesting idea to explore since this whole podcast is about how horror helps our mental health. Um, mm-hmm. there's definitely an argument to be made, especially when it comes to like true crime and this obsession with this kind of thing that, that mm-hmm. it has a negative impact. And so I don't know, I don't I don't want to have an opinion there one way or the other, but I definitely think it's a really interesting theme of the film. Also, yeah. I just wanted to side note, Bagul strikes me as like Slender Man, like this idea of something that you create on the internet or a story that you 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 see it and then you force it into existence. It's kind of this like thought mm-hmm. form energy ghost kind of thing and like that's and it reminded me of like the Slenderman murders and all that kind of and that was its own thing about paranoia you know so i could go down a whole yeah. bunch of rabbit holes there but this is kind of what i landed on is how i see paranoia coming to life in this movie
0: yeah. Well, and fun fact about Man, um, when because Bagul is not a real deity. He was created for this movie. Mm-hmm. But when they were searching for the imagery, they just went to the Internet and they started just searching for these memes that had been created, kind of how Slender Man was created. Mm-hmm. And they found one that they really liked and they just paid the creator to use oh, the that's imagery. Fun.
1: To me, he yeah. looks like, I don't know if you've ever seen... There's a series of, like, vampire movies that were, like, direct-to-video in the 90s from Full Moon Video called the Subspecies series. Um, They're awesome. Like, they were filmed in Romania for, like, $20 each. But the fact that they were filmed in all these old castles in Romania make them look really cool. And the main vampire is called Radu. And it looks so much like that vampire in that movie, except Mm. the eyes are more blackened out. Also looked a little bit like WCW Sting, uh, the <laughs> professional wrestler when he was doing his crow gimmick.
2: I, mm, um, I was going to say he looks like what Glenn Danzig thinks Glenn Danzig looks like. You know? Looks <laughs> yeah. like when,
1: when Glenn Danzig looks, looks in his funhouse yeah. mirror every morning. He's like, and I'm, he's like, I'm a big boy. I'm a big,
0: tall, evil man. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's so creepy in the moment when Ethan Hawke is looking away and then he turns his head on the frozen screen. Oh, I know. He's it's always cute.
2: Fun, fun. Yeah. so fun. Yeah, I actually had a um, nightmare exactly like that years before this movie came out, where I had taken all these photos of of something, and like I was on a forest trail, and then I picked up one of the photos, and the head turned and looked at me, and then I was like, it saw me, and I dropped it, and was running and running, and I just knew. And I woke up; it was such a vivid nightmare. And I woke up and was like, it saw me, it saw me, it's gonna follow me. So the first time I saw this mm-hmm. movie, that moment, I, like, it made me flash back to this nightmare, and I was like, ah, ah. So oh it's my just there's something really primal about it, and I don't know why. No. But, yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah and I think it's because it's hitting those those paranoia fears that we all have experienced to some extent, um, mm-hmm. like when you were talking about true crime and infecting kind of your mind with those things, part of the reason that I stepped back from true crime is um because I used to listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and one of the ones I was listening to gave just so many details of this one particular crime and it upset me so much and like I couldn't like I was having trouble interacting with my kids without thinking about that and without Mm -hmm. like imagining that happening to them and it just that's when I had to step away and I still I've kind of um, lost a little bit of that um, now and Still don't think I'm ready to go back to true crime, but no. it just it, it it was like it infected me. And I like remember having a conversation with Corey about like how to keep that from happening when we go out in public and just how those seeds built and built and built in my head. Because, I mean, especially with true crime, when it's a horror movie, like I can watch Sinister and I watch that lawnmower scene and I think this isn't real. This is a movie. This is not a real thing. But true crime, you know that it is real and that this thing actually did happen. And so I don't have that barrier in my mind. And Mm -hmm. that paranoia starts with, well, it happened to this person. It could happen to me. And so then it just kind of snowballs, you know. There's a lot of
2: interesting. And and again, I don't want to get too into this because I don't feel prepared to speak on it because it's so complicated. But there's uh, uh, that podcast called You're Wrong About has done some really good, interesting stuff on the true crime phenomenon and what it is. Where it comes from. And also, um, there, there's just been a lot of stuff kind of taking down a lot of our ideas that we've constructed through media, like the whole. Law and order, like forensic evidence, like none of the forensic Mm -hmm. evidence has a lot of like scientific basis and that it's actually this kind Mm -hmm. of like cultural fairy tale. We tell ourselves about what to fear and why we fear Mm. it. And it's been a complete misdirection on the part of like governments and patriarchy to make us afraid of the wrong things. So I'm having this whole thing as somebody who was for most of my life obsessed with true crime, feeling like I've been lied to and manipulated Mm. in a way by media. And um, I don't know, it's just something I have a lot of stirred up thoughts on that I don't feel prepared to get super into, but we should definitely have a separate conversation about it at some right. point. I think so too. And you too. see
1: and you see like with like with probably the two biggest phenomenons in true crime of the past few years have been like the podcast serial that first season mm-hmm. as well as like Making a Murderer on Netflix. And mm-hmm. there wherever you stand on it, it's sometimes hard to remember that they are still being used as forms of entertainment with very specific, not necessarily objective points of view by the content creators. Like, they yeah. <laughs> are narrating their own story around it to make it look a certain way, and you wonder what's being left out. And I believe it's like Arrow Flynn, who did, like, The Thin Blue Line, um, where he was able to exonerate a... Um, man, who was like innocent, and was on, I believe, death row in Texas. Yep. He was able to exonerate in Dallas, him. I
2: believe.
1: Da- right, and ever since, and also you have the work of, oh God, Blair Witch Two.
2: Hmm. I don't know if I know I, why.
1: Can I, he had done basically the trilogy of documentaries on the West Memphis 3.
2: Oh, was he mm-hmm. the HBO guy that did the, the par- Paradise yes. Lost or whatever yep. it was called? Paradise which Lost. Which also Correct. has been so, shown to have a lot of problems in retrospect driven by that mm-hmm. authorial narrative. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Joe Berlinger. Joe yes, Berlinger. Yes, um, who It's funny because he had talked about how much he disliked the original Blair Witch Project because he took offense to the way that they presented found footage as reality and all the things they did. He took it as a, a documentarian, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry to distract detract a little bit <laughs> here. Um, getting back to Sinister, I think, Larry, you hit it. Like, I put it in my own. Like, we're on the same page, like, where I saw the conspiracies being made. Like, when he wakes up on the sofa with that bat in his hand after wandering through the house at night, and he sits down with deputy so-and-so and really for the first time sees him as a peer mm-hmm. and doesn't mm-hmm. – he lets him into that window of people he can trust. Now, there are other instances in the movie like he, he is about – when he f- sees that first 8-millimeter film, he picks up the phone, mm-hmm. he dials the police station, and he hangs up before saying anything – and they show him looking to his first book, Kentucky Blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the question is like, did he hang up because he thinks the cops won't believe him? I think he hangs up because he's like, Nope, I ne- I got a book here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I that's gonna break
1: the story.
2: That's his sin. Right? That's his sin that he's being punished for in like a right. classic horror movie sort of way, is that he you see mm-hmm. over and over again he has all these opportunities to 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 let it go and to mm-hmm. do the right thing. And he just Mm-hmm. And every time he put, pops in one of his mm-hmm. videos, uh, like we're really weird watching those movies of himself, you know, the interviews and no. stuff, you know, he's just, he keeps going back to, it's absolutely and, self, like it's a little bit of narcissism that drives him.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, there absolutely is some narcissism there. And I, I get it to a certain degree. I mean.
2: Oh yeah. As a creative. I yeah. Know, <laughs>
1: yeah. I don't know any of us that haven't looked at our lives, especially like I'm in middle age now, and you wonder, like, are the best years behind me? Mm-hmm. You know, and you look at that, or did I peak? You know, did I hit my peak? Have I gone? So I kind of understand where he's coming from, and you get that sense of self-loathing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When he says, like, I would rather, like, sell no books, but, you know, solve yeah. a crime. And it's like, fuck you, You dude. lying yeah. piece of shit. you won't. Know? Yeah. No, you
2: yeah. will not yeah. um, Absolutely.
1: But, but he definitely now is letting deputy so-and-so in, And saying, and and letting him in on this. And he's asking, like, he makes this connection that's not there. Like, look, this family, was there anything weird about them? Mm -hmm. Did anyone report, like, strange occurrences that had happened? He's like, no, in the short time they were here, like, they were totally normal. So he's automatically, he's going to a place that's really out of nowhere saying, like, oh, this family must have had something wrong with him, them. And then you go back further And like you said, you see that big board with all the yarn Mm -hmm. through it. You know, you see these pictures of Bagul, which is such a fun word to say. I know. (laughs) And and I think like Bagul is the weakest part of the movie, like Mm -hmm. the actual monster. And I think it's good he's not in it too, too much. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see these things which look like just these misshapen black and white patterns And he's making these connections across decades. And I think even like Deputy So-and-So says, like, well, look, this dude would be in his 80s by now based on like the timeline you're coming up with here. Like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So he's making these connections to this thing that may or may not be real. And you see this increased paranoia in the last part where he has his second Skype conversation with Vincent D'Ofrida. D'Onofrio, yeah. Thank you so. Was much. that Vincent
2: D'Onofrio was playing that yeah, character? Oh my god! I just because yeah. I was wondering, Which, I I had a mental note: look up who's playing that guy because he's got a real mm-hmm. uh, presence, you know. But holy
0: crap, yeah. that's so funny!
1: Which, goddamn, I love it. He's like, I'll be in your little movie, but look, right. I'm not leaving my house. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He, he had a joke where, that yeah. it was
0: like one of his family members that walked behind him at yeah. that point, and they just didn't want to reshoot it.
1: <laughs> I just think that is like so believable. Such a
0: <laughs> that's such a
1: baller move. Like it's I just know. like you know, yeah. And you can do that now. We can, that's, yeah. That, that's how that all second, movies are
2: going to be made now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Second,
1: that second conversation that he has, like, Ellison thinks, like, oh my God, there's this, like, centuries old deity that is now out to get me. Like, mm-hmm. he's fully, he can't articulate it because he's still aware enough to know, like, this doesn't sound good, but it's there. Like, that thought is planted, that, like, I am part of this thing. That now stretches back to like pre-Christian Judeo times.
0: Yeah,
2: and, and I was mm-hmm. I was gonna say, you know, to your question earlier, Jen, of like, are you paranoid if it's actually happening? Like, I still think like I think once you're in the horror genre, anything we're seeing happen on screen, that paranoia is gonna turn out to be justified within the right. narrative mm-hmm. of like most horror movies. Um, or it'll be about paranoia leading to its own consequences in films like Repulsion and like there's other, mm-hmm. you know, um more like art housey cinema kind of things. Um but I do think that it's still fine to, you know, like to take the perspective of the character that isn't in the narrative and be like, well, all these things would make you incredibly paranoid in any other context, you
0: know, so it's just a thought. Well, and I think that like what the last movie we were talking about, Invisible Man, like a lot of these reactions would happen even if there wasn't an invisible person tormenting Elizabeth Moss. And I think you could kind of see this like if I found a snake and a scorpion in my house and I heard a noise I can't explain and I'm already in that super dark mindset, I think your mind is going to start creating those things. And what I think is so interesting about the conversations that he has with Vincent D'Onofrio and Deputy So-and-so is, like, you can see how far he's come in their reactions to him. You know, like, Vincent D'Onofrio, when I was watching it, I was like, tell me the answer, because he hangs up without ever finding out what happens. I can't even remember the question. But Vincent D'Onofrio is like, something's up with this guy. This is not right. Like, he senses how off this is, and he senses the unhealthy paranoia. And there's the moment when Deputy So-and-so he asks I can't remember what he asks but deputy so and so I was like fuck no I would never sleep in this house that was Are such you a you saying yeah. no I believe in all <laughs> right. of it yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. I loved that moment it's like a moment that we don't get in horror I know. very often and he it's just, delivered so well I know he's so likable as an actor oh just so
2: likable
1: and it definitely speaks to that conspiracy theorist that lives mm-hmm. in all of us like like sure like you're probably not being hunted by you know like a pagan deity Mm -hmm. but I'm still you might be getting hunted by a ghost exactly Yeah, I'm not
0: going near that yeah exactly and I say like I believe in this enough to not want to mess with it you know like if anybody ever sees a ghost in my house I they are under orders not to tell me because I don't because then I will start seeing it and I guess it's the paranoia we're talking about um, and I think it's just achieved so effectively here. And, like, I love blue walls in a house, but here it's, like, with the darkness. Um, it reminds... it, Like, it functions the way a found footage movie does mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, because the thing... I think part of the reason I love found footage so much is because I'm so often doing other things while I'm watching movies or I'm like folding Mm -hmm. laundry or I'm like catching up on emails. And so I'm not 100 percent focused. But with found footage, you have to or you're going to miss that one thing. Or you'll realize an hour later that a movie is still on that you've forgotten about. And so Mm -hmm. I think, like, I watch this movie and I find myself constantly scanning the screens. Because there are moments where there's a fifth of the screen that has something on it. And the rest is just pitch black darkness. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, like, the blue like the wash of this movie it's just amazing love Um, it love
1: it well the haunting way the children move like the ghost Uh children um and the second one and i like the second one more Mm -hmm. than most people do i think um the second one doesn't i think overdoes it a little bit but this one like just the movement and the mo it's it's just it's like almost operatic in terms of like how these kids are moving it's so ghostly i absolutely love it I one agree. comment I, I, i'd be remiss if i didn't say like he lives in a house of the heaviest motherfucker sleepers of all time yeah <laughs> like, like he falls through the attic i know and i like was, no one gets
0: up you know, I, know. Like, <laughs> I had a
2: moment while watching while rewatching it where i was like did they go to the sister's house or something like did no one right. yeah what the hell <laughs>
0: Also, as much as I've said I've loved the darkness, why does he not turn on any fucking lights when he's walking around? I get not turning the light on in your bedroom when your wife is asleep, but like when you're in another There's part of the house, that. what's the reason? So
1: so the reason for is I used to sell lighting control, like automated lighting control. Uh-huh. If you think that someone is in your house, like the worst thing you can do is go room to room and turn on lights. because. Really? What happens is like they'll be like, oh, someone's in that room now. Now looks that light went on. Oh, went to the next room. Now someone's in that room. So for security reasons, in terms of our pitch, we would sell specifically like Lutron Raw lighting control systems. You would have a little thing by your bed. It had like little hard buttons on it, and you would press like night light and all the light. You could do a panic mode where mm-hmm. basically. All your lights would come up, and they could not be turned off unless you disabled it, and your front lights would blink. So it's like if someone had to come to your house, like the cops, like, well, which house do I go to? I don't know, the one with every fucking light on at (laughs) one in the morning (laughs) where all the lights are blinking. But you would, like, turn all the lights in your house on at the same time, and then that way they wouldn't know where you are. So that's probably a stretch to a certain degree. Um, But you
0: just freaked me out a little bit. (laughs) Yes. Speaking (laughs) speaking of paranoia. (laughs) I know. I read a book a long time ago where they talked about like, it was from the perspective of a burglar. And he said, if there's a light on in the bathroom, I'm not going to break into that house because that's the one room in the house where it's believable that somebody would be, could be awake at any point in the night Mm -hmm. because and you're saying most people when they break into your house, they don't want to attack you. They're trying mm-hmm. to break in and get out without you knowing. Um, and then it went took me down a rabbit hole where they're like, Yeah, if they cut the phone and they cut the power, that means they're coming to get you. Right. And so now every time the power goes out, I go out and see if like the other houses on my street, the power's out. So mm-hmm. I know not to like freak out. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it's the it's the home alone phenomenon where like you have you know, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern sitting in their little van going six o'clock, that Mm -hmm. one, 605, like they knew, like, you could have, like, these vacation modes where it's like, we knew, you know, what lights were on timers because we would see it yeah, happen all the time that's
0: so funny and it's it's interesting that as we're talking about this I think our own kind of paranoias mm-hmm. about tiny things are kind of starting to come out well I was just gonna say that
2: the whole like I've definitely had I mean as a as a woman you know I've had a lot of like home invasion you know paranoias and, and mm-hmm. such and I I to that same note of like true crime and stuff like the way that we focus on that it's even though that is so statistically improbable the amount of time of my life i've spent being nervous and paranoid about that is so disproportionate to the mm-hmm. like chance of it actually happening while i you know chose not to worry about other things that i should have been more worried about drives me mm-hmm. crazy if I think about it I'm like what is wrong with me and what is wrong with our culture that we have have made ourselves collectively paranoid about these things that have such a scant chance of happening and then that actually does become diagnosable because it's not really rooted in in, in reality anymore right. you know right. so anyway I'm just so I'm so frustrated at the ways that true crime has poisoned my brain
0: so <laughs> well and I think there's that level of not being able to trust authority or feeling like no one is going to protect us and I mean I get as a woman like I definitely Definitely feel that in a lot oh, of yeah. instances like if I don't have my keys like woven through my hands like I'm screwed oh yeah you know? I still
2: walk around with like pepper spray and like I have a stabby thing because I took so many self-defense and martial arts classes that that stuff is just like wired into me as a, and I think I, I was drawn to all that because I was a paranoid woman you know who mm-hmm. was highly aware of her own weakness you know so it, it's that's just yeah.
0: where we're at <laughs> it's like there's the seed and then we just tell ourselves all of these things based on like fractions of truth and then fractions of narrative I'm kind of like as we're talking about this rethinking a lot of true crime and realizing oh yeah it is for entertainment and so there like I remember when um, Unsolved Mysteries came out new on Netflix people were so frustrated that there were not resolutions to these stories and, like right. that's the whole point it's the title it's unsolved. <laughs> right but it's just like our brain wants that mm-hmm. reaction or that that solution, and even like when I think about the true crime that I do listen to, I don't like the unsolved ones. I like and I right. don't like the I like the ones where they tell me the whole story in the the episode because then I can let it go and move on with my life. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit um, that I connected to was like in my mind I think of it as jinxing, like jinxing myself. Um, and mm. where I saw it was. I kept thinking, okay, if they just stay in this house, they're safe because he's not they're not gonna get killed until they move out. And that's like whereas that's not really true because this is keep is gonna keep escalating. But it's like that feeling of if I just do this one thing right that will protect me from these unknown things Mm -hmm. like if i figure out that red string and i get it and i can hang my hat on this one thing i used to think um if i was not wearing my titans jersey during a game that they were going to lose and i it started off as just oh i'm going to wear my jersey for the game it'll be fun and then it became this if I had a fantasy team, I didn't know which Jersey to wear because I didn't know what, and it like, I started to like Mm -hmm. really get consumed with it. And I finally had to say, like, I'm trying to control things that are out of my control with this tiny action of like the clothing I'm wearing. And I think there's an element of that here. Like if we can just find the right thing. And I don't know if this is kind of bordering into OCD territory but, like, I noticed that, and I was like, well, if they just stay in that house, they'll be safe. You know, right. he can't get them.
1: And you know that it would become a game of chicken. Like, uh-huh. you said it would just escalate. Like, what would be the breaking point where you would no longer be able to stay there at that point? Right. And I think by the time that, like, the they become um, sentient and you can actually see them, you know, that would be the, all right, pack. And I like that he makes, like, that decision, you know, I, one of the strengths of the movie is he like immediately does what we think anyone should do in a horror movie and never do is like they burn, he burns the evidence, mm-hmm. get in the car and they just drive off at that yeah. point. And like, that's I'm what done. still not say no. Seals
2: their fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I yeah. do
1: think like one of the things I do like is like you can already see him second guessing his decision to not write the book by the time he gets, (laughs) because now he's back in an environment. And again, I think that's a very human thing. Mm -hmm, Like, I'm not going to fault the character for that. You can see him going, okay, I'm no longer in that house. I no longer have the tapes. I don't have all of that negative paraphernalia surrounding me. I know there's a story here. I really don't wanna write textbooks for a living, which I'd imagine would actually be a pretty lucrative career. Yeah, um, I would do that. Which is really I can get where that might be a little bit I feel
2: like anything not... as a copywriter, anything uh, mm-hmm. copy doesn't pay well. Anyway. Oh, okay. really? I, I don't I mean um, I don't know. Publishing is so bizarre now anyway. It's like I, I've never mm-hmm. I've never got into the realm of publishing and okay. I know that publishing books is so like much less of a thing than it used to be. <laughs> so I wonder so if so text the might
1: knows. be textbooks for universities or he could teach you know but he's like i mean he makes it clear that that avenue is open to him he's just choosing to not do it Mm -hmm. and choosing for his
0: family too
1: right and you could see like him already second like once he sits behind his desk he's like is there i don't know if there's a book and not saying no there's no book he's like i don't know but he can see the wheels turning Mm -hmm. for him um yeah yeah Ironically enough, he would probably end up being the subject of a... Few.
2: Right, True exactly. Crime. Like the daughter yeah. says, "Daddy, I can yeah. make you. Don't worry, I'll make you famous again." Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, which is just the real twisting of the knife, you know. Like it's very much yeah. like your yeah. sins, the sins of the father, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and kind of going back to the family dynamic, that was something that I was thinking about a lot while I was watching this. Like, um I guess it was playing on my paranoia, especially since I'm at home all day now when my kids are here and I'm working from home. But I'm upstairs, like I'm disconnected from them and Mm -hmm. I a lot of times what I'm doing is I'm watching or I'm consuming media that they can't really handle yet so I really like saw that disconnect between the family and I started thinking oh no is that me (laughs) so I guess like the seeds of paranoia got into me Um, but I just think it's so interesting. And I was waiting for him to burn the stuff and then say, "Okay, everything's good," and go back to bed. Mm-hmm. And I love how this movie like plays on those horror tropes and the stereotypes. And I do think he would go back to the book. And I wonder if he had just not moved into the house. Like he right. may have had a great book or maybe maybe not solved it, but like there's there's probably something to write there. He just it was his hubris and like his need to chase like this dream that he had convinced himself Mm -hmm. the grandiosity that he believed um that he was never really able to say no maybe I'm just not that great of a writer maybe I got lucky this one time Mm -hmm. you know or maybe the world has changed because this was I think 2012 I think and Mm -hmm. they talk about like the housing market like there's I'm going to link an article that talks about some other Things like the paranoia of, ne- of not being good enough or like never being able to reach that high again and like constantly thinking my wife knows I'm not good enough and my, my kids probably right. know it too, you know. And
1: the housing market thing hits because um, this is still not in the middle of the great recession that started in 2008, but the recovery at that point had been slower than we had wanted it mm-hmm. to be. And I know that like my wife and I had bought like a little condo in 06. And within two years, like, and it was not a lot of money for this condo in two years it had lost half its value. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we were terrified that as our daughter who was born in 2010, like, cause we had a neighbor that pounded the floor on us. Every time my daughter literally just walked mm. as a toddler or like, we're going to be trapped here. Mm-hmm. Like we felt so like that, the, I, I do like that this film does touch on the economic concerns yeah. and, like, that – I don't know if I would call it paranoia, but, like, this this fear that it might not be compl- – it's re- rooted in some reality that, like, I have to do – I have to take a gamble to make something work. Otherwise, like, we're fucked.
2: Or, yeah, or right. we're um, trapped because yeah. he, he so couldn't take mm-hmm. the hit to what he wanted to do. He couldn't live a less than ideal lifestyle because he had gotten that taste of success and it Mm -hmm. would forever torment him.
1: Right. I mean, the minute we recovered enough that like, and there were other reasons too, but the minute like we recovered enough that we can like break even, we're like sell it, like it went on the market and we moved to like a home as opposed to a condo. But we're like, we were just absolutely... Terrified of this idea that, like, what if the bubble burst again? And like, mm-hmm. we're—I I do not want to die in this nine hundred square foot condo. And
2: that's probably why I will never buy property because I graduate. <laughs> I graduated college in two thousand eight, and I, <laughs> I that that mm-hmm. that will never leave me. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to say, I think, about um, the generation of people who are growing up with the, like, just what we're all living through. And I right. think, oh God. I saw some tweet that said, <laughs> they're going to be, like, years down the road, people are going to specialize in quadrants of 2020 mm-hmm. because of all of the shit that's happened here. And there's yeah, it's so too m- much. It, it is. It feels like a culmination of. Things that have been building for Mm -hmm. decades. Um, Yeah, it's awful. (laughs) I know, yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, so is there anything else that we haven't talked about in Sinister that we want to, as far as paranoia? Or I should stop at the end of my question. (laughs) Is there anything we haven't
2: covered yet? I don't have any other deep thoughts that I think I'm missing here.
1: I think, yeah, as far as like the deep themes of paranoia, I think we've kind of hit them
0: um but so what other mental health topics do we see here and we're not going to dig into these um but we just kind of don't want to let anything go by um and we might talk about them in future episodes um one of the things i see here is imposter syndrome a lot and i think there's Mm -hmm. an element of paranoia in there but just in the way that ethan Hawke is always like that fear that he's not good enough and that everyone's going to find out i see that yeah absolutely I see um, night terrors and sleepwalking, and I don't know very much about that at all. Um, I guess I'm lucky to be able to say that, um, knock on wood. <laughs> and I'm also going to link an article. I found a an article examining this from um, Recession Anxiety, Surveillance Labor, yep. and the Hauntology of the Digital and Sinister. And it was a really fascinating article. It goes really, really in-depth. Um, It's just kind of not exactly what we were talking about in this, but I wanted to link it. Yeah. That sounds like a great article title. It's a great, (laughs) yeah. yeah,
1: It's a great article. Like I I have that bookmarked and I started to go through it. Like you had said, I'm like, "Eh, it's not exactly what we're covering. So there's only some, but I want to, I actually want to sit down and, and read it just for fun Yeah, it, it was so well done.
0: Um, um, the uh, academic language in that article is the most academic no. language I have encountered yes. in a long time. It's a little time. bit of that,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's a little like, bit up its own behind a bit, but I, was, I think that's the audience. I was going to say, it yeah, sure sounds so
2: like an academic title. I, I, I'm, does, I yeah. I'm curious if the hauntology of the digital, if they get into one of the movies that I see this in because I have some thoughts on that note. Um, but I'm, I'm curious now I'm very curious to read the article. Okay.
1: So I saw a bit of like, and again, I mentioned this before, like delusional disorder mm-hmm. in this one where it's similar to paranoid disorder with the exception that you are experiencing these delusions at this mm-hmm. point. And in most areas of your life, you are able to kind of function normally but you'll have this one fixation which can make it like very difficult to treat there's obviously there's like the anxiety that is going on there as well Mm -hmm. um you see so i would say like that would be the main thing is like is it paranoia or is he experiencing delusions and you wonder you know again it's a horror movie so you kind of like take it at face value, at what is happening is happening. But if this person is was in front of me, and if this is what he was experiencing was to continue on for an extended period of time, then you start looking at things like schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Then you start looking at you know, you're having these hallucinations that this footage is like looking back at you and trying to communicate with you Mm -hmm. in some way. Um, You would have these audible hallucinations that there, are and visual hallucinations that there are ghost children in your home that are pursuing you for untold Mm -hmm. reasons. You know, the thing about schizophrenia, what makes it really insidious as well as the fact that a lot of times, like, you simply cannot function. Mm. Um, and that's part of, like, what makes us, like, that's why the schizophrenia disorders exist on kind of a spectrum. And when you get to full-blown schizophrenia, you're usually looking at someone that is going to have, like, a very very, very difficult time functioning. And I think, like, when we think of, like, paranoid schizophrenia phreniac, or what, what that phrase would have been that's kind of what you're thinking of the person who's kind of mumbling and like, kind of mm. like dodging along at that point. So.
0: And I know. think we definitely are going to do some future episodes on schizophrenia. Oh yeah. yeah. There's a ton evil... of
2: movies that that really gets. Like, we gotta, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: We got to yeah. do evil dead Two And schizophrenia. <laughs> oh
0: man. The clock is um, like, like you're looking at the clock. You're laughing. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think we also, we see an element of toxic relationship here. Yep. hundred um, And, and kind of gaslighting, I guess, or like the convincing yourself that what, what his wife is seeing and experiencing that there is something wrong is in her head and that it's not, or it's not valid. Yeah. You know? He half acidly tries to gaslight
2: her and she does not take it. <laughs> like, right. I know. It,
1: it was an imperfect relationship. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would call them a toxic relationship. Mm. I, I, you know, and it's like, I feel like that, like I do about the phrase, like toxic, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes that gets overused a little bit. Um, to the point where, like, sometimes couples argue, and he was definitely guilty of some things. He should like buying a house without. Mm. It's not like when Jim bought Pam a house in the office, and she was all happy. Yeah, um, I bought you a murder was,
2: house. Uh, yeah. yes, right? <laughs> I
1: bought you the murder house, which is not a good thing. I, I feel. Um, I feel like their but,
2: their relationship had really good foundations, yes. and yes. and they definitely loved each other, and that this was we were seeing a period of their marriage where things were he was becoming dysfunctional, and it was affecting the relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, exactly because his own insecurities were now getting in the way of being like, he's like he had invested so much of himself in this persona as a writer and successful writer and celebrity really he got mm-hmm. caught up in the trappings of celebrity I mean you see that house that he fucking bought yeah
3: it's obscene you know, that they moved back into right and it's
1: like I just want to like run around in there and like hug all the bookshelves that are built in oh, like yeah it is it, at one point he'd experienced some like you it's an obscene level of wealth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At that point, to be able to afford that, um,
3: yeah. But I
1: think that, like, even he was able to recognize like there was a limit mm-hmm. that I, I think. And th- when we spoke about toxic relationships last month, there was never a limit that would be or a boundary that could be set. Right. And I think that he really needed his wife's. He needed her to approve of what he did. You can see, like, he's desperate for. Her to be, and that's why he's like trying to bargain and convince her um, that he's on the right track. Because you know, I think he doesn't believe his own bullshit.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah,
1: you know, and he's like, please, someone else kind of believe in me. So, I thought that she could give him back everything he gave her. Like she was not gonna put like when she tells him, if this goes wrong, I will take the kids and leave. It does not feel like an empty threat.
0: No, it doesn't. And it doesn't feel like a malicious thing either. Right. You know? She's just setting up um, she's
2: setting a boundary and making it very clear mm-hmm. and he has yeah. to like you know, accept it. So,
0: yeah. And then when he does kind of course correct, like she's still with him, you know, she doesn't like hold out in anger to try Mm -hmm. to kind of prove her point. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I did say it was Mm -hmm. toxic relationship, but I mean, I I like that we're kind of unpacking that because there are so many different levels to that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's, um, so if we don't see anything else, um, any other mental health topics in this movie, let's talk about other movies that we see paranoia in. Um, specifically like this type of paranoia that's not necessarily related to other people it's more related to our surroundings and our own kind of heads Um, I know I definitely see paranoia or in paranormal activity I got a lot of the same kind of vibes from that movie and I think a lot of it is just kind of what I was saying about found footage and like what um, the way this movie functions and making you One of the things I think that is most effective about this movie is there's always, like, the things we see that are happening out of his sight that we know are there, but he doesn't know it's there. And I think we can so easily put ourselves in the shoes um, and say, oh, well, what if there's something behind me right now? And I think paranoia or paranormal activity kind of hits on that same dread feeling for me. Are there anything any other movies that we see kind of this type of paranoia in? Yeah, so... Well, this movie made me think of two slash three movies
2: um, that are thematically really similar. I don't know if they fully qualify as paranoia, but they are in the same wheelhouse of feeling and paranoid atmosphere as this movie, um, which were the ring slash ringu, whether you're going for the uh, American version or the original Japanese version. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some obvious on the nose, like the. Creature coming out of the movie, the cursed, the cursed creature, little girl actually coming out of the the film and the the cursed uh, video idea. Um, Mm -hmm. The movie that I think is a little more interesting to compare it to is called Pulse from 2001, also a Japanese film that I absolutely love. And I won't say too much because I really want to do an episode on it (laughs) at some (laughs) point. Um, But it has a lot to do with the idea that the hauntology of the digital made me think of this Mm -hmm. because it was made... Right when um, the Internet was really becoming more popular as a, a PC kind of thing, as that was common in people's homes. And mm-hmm. it was this idea of things manifesting through digital video over the Internet and kind of like infecting your home and infecting people's lives. Um, and it was speaking of being like really, really prescient and like really like anticipating the 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 negative sides of the internet and the digital age and misinformation and and how that and how it alienates us from each other um that movie really gets into all of that and I feel like it has a really similar mood and vibe like I feel like this movie was mood wise really influenced by like j-horror and those kind of mm-hmm. like creatures and you know that the ghostly children and all that kind of stuff and I'm a huge fan of that so um that's what I was picking up yeah Mike what about you
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of just pure paranoia, I mean, there's obviously classic films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers for the 1950s, where you start to worry about are the people around you being replaced. Um, Also, I would say in terms of like digital manipulation, the unfriended movies, especially the first mm-hmm. one with the supernatural presence mm-hmm. that goes on there and this feeling that you can't trust this technology around you uh and that it's you're being manipulated by it. Um oh. that's kind of what jumps out of to the forefront. And then there are movies like, you know, The Changeling where you're not sure that you're alone, that you're thinking that something is kind of haunting you. Mm-hmm. Um, things of that nature. And also like a more recent mm-hmm. film from, uh, Ted Giegan called, um, we are still here.
0: Oh yeah. Which that's I think oh, that's borrows a good movie. Some
1: notes from the change which, you know, that's a movie. Maybe I think when we cover grief, mm-hmm. um, I would really like to cover that film. Cause it's so fucking wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and really beautiful. But you know, this feeling like, wait a minute. Like, did we get, you know, get to a house that is like, they're definitely being maneuvered into at that point uh, for mm-hmm. nefarious reasons. And you can't trust the whole town at that point. So,
0: Well, and when we're talking about like haunted houses, there's definitely, I think, connections to Amityville Horror here mm-hmm. too, you know, with like the economic fear um <sighs> but yeah, it's just haunted house movies. I think are one of my favorite subgenres, and I love when you do it really well. Cause I think it's really easy to do it poorly. And I mm-hmm. think this is one that does it really well. Are there any other movies that we wanted to call out as, um, I just thought related. I just thought
2: of one cause you were saying uh, Mike about unfriended. Did you guys see cam the Netflix movie? Uh, yes. Yeah. Ooh, that's yeah. so good. Yeah. I, I
1: still haven't. seen Oh, it's it so yet.
2: good. You have to see it. Go mm-hmm. see it. Uh, but it, it also has the idea of, like, your digital identity, like, and your real identity and how the two merge and split. And, and you know, mm-hmm. that actually would really qualify well as a paranoid movie because she, you know, is seeing something happen and becomes, her behavior becomes increasingly, seemingly paranoid and erratic. But what she's really experiencing is, is something like it's her identity is being stolen. And it's mm-hmm. all about that digital identity shit, which is just, it's so mm-hmm. cool. It's such a great it's,
0: movie. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good... um yeah, there are a lot of fantastic things about that movie, but that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, shall we move into our uplifting moment? Yes. Sure. Q <laughs> harp. Um, all right, so we wanted to... Um, kind of take a moment to lift us all up out of the paranoia that I know that I've certainly felt as we're talking through this um, I noticed at one point like my hand was shaking a little bit because oh no. <laughs> I just think I kind of started indulging some of my more paranoid thoughts um, but so we wanted to talk about our grounding and coping techniques. And our self-care. And we talked a little bit about um, what self-care is last time and how we don't want this to be a shaming time of things that you want to do but you're not or things that you should be doing to take care of yourself but you're not. But more like what is making me feel good right now? What is something I go to? Um, And so, Mike, do you have any kind of um, self-care or grounding and coping techniques that have been working for you?
1: So for self-care, yeah. And I would say, like, this is the first like I actually even said to my wife, like, yesterday, like, like, I'm experiencing a bunch of, like, mini panic attacks and just, mm-hmm. like, want to lie here for a little bit and just be kind of left alone. And I think mm-hmm. it was the first week it really kind of hit. And I think, again, a number of things hit this week. Number one, like we got the good news that um, our, the school district I work in as a counselor is going to start remotely. And I think it's the safe and responsible thing to do especially Mm -hmm. because we are testing at about a two and a half times the rate as any other town it's the state levels basically um but it just like brought up a whole number of other challenges like what about childcare? Mm -hmm. how am i going to serve the kids an iep for their social emotional needs what about the people that need food um So it brought all that to my head. And then, like, this is the first week that I think, like, election paranoia Mm
2: -hmm.
3: really hit. Same, Mm -hmm.
1: same.
2: um, Yeah, Uh I've been having that same, the USPS stuff is what's been, you know, just hearing that feels like a death knell of some sort.
1: This was the first week that it, like, seemed to, like, really, really hit me Mm -hmm. to the point where I felt like pretty shitty yesterday Mm. um and fyi to
2: anyone listening we're recording this about three weeks or maybe more before it will be released so don't think that we were like whatever is horrible things are happening in that at the point of time (laughs) that this is released (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: so i'm sure something far worse will like will be (sighs) he'll like declare war on the sun you know yeah
0: Yeah. or like the um, giant squids will like invade Mm -hmm. i believe Um, i believe it so
1: yeah. Today was like the first, today, yesterday and today were the first two days in forever that it has not been like 95 degrees plus and super humid. Mm. So this morning, my daughter and I broke out like the bikes and went for like a five mile bike ride on a trail. And just like, I actually ran, ran into my principal at my school, which was kind of nice. And she's like, you got to trim your beard. And I'm <laughs> like, nope, um, we'll not do that. Um, But it was nice to, like, just get out and pedal and get some fresh air and some exercise on a really nice kind of shady track and just feel, like, reinvigorated and then come home and, like, do an hour of cleaning. And um, so, like, I got to incorporate that more into my routine of, like, doing three to four, you know, 30-minute rides a week just to Mm -hmm. feel kind of relaxed.
0: Yeah. Laura, what
2: about you? Do you
0: have any... Yeah,
2: no, I mean, I'm going to sound like a bit of a broken record. I've just been struggling with the whole self-care thing still. And I also um, had a bad week in terms of feeling like there, I think there was something, I think it is with all this ambient stress, like we're all experiencing it in collective peaks and valleys. And I think that this week had a, a lot of, Ambient stress relating to the USPS and all the, you know, uh, election, upcoming election stuff. I do feel like something moved in all of our heads and it got worse. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, I've been struggling with that and, um, my work has been really crazy, uh, and it's all writing about coronavirus. And so that's, you know, it just has, again, it's an ambient effect that it has on you. And I've been experiencing Mm -hmm. a lot of neck and lower back pain as a result, but I guess Mm -hmm. some self-care is I just ordered this very expensive ergonomic chair to hopefully help with that. You can, if uh, not, if you're listening to this, but Mike and Jen can see me tapping Mm. it. It's got a little headrest. Um, It's lovely.
0: And it's gray, which is a beautiful color yeah i thought it
2: had some color options i was like that's a little better than just the standard black office chair um and i've been doing i've been forcing myself to do these like yoga uh, yoga with adrian <laughs> youtubes just to help mm-hmm. and it, ha- it has helped get the pain under control it's still pretty bad in mm-hmm. my neck but um just like sometimes it for me i i, I neglect myself to the point that i'm in actual bad pain <laughs> and mm-hmm. then that's just like a sort of a reminder to myself to not let that happen so usually when once I hit that it's like oh nope I really need to be doing more maintenance I really need to be taking more breaks in my day and so you know y- you can choose to look at pain as just bad or as a remind it's bad but it's also a reminder to take care of yourself and so I'm trying to look at it that way <laughs> and not just yeah and not just be upset so
0: <laughs> yeah I, my, I injured my hand a while ago for a lot of different reasons. And I was talking to my therapist. I said, if I injure my left hand, I'm definitely taking time off. And she said, why do you have to injure both of your hands? Like, your body is screaming at you that you need to take a break. Um, and that's kind of what mine has been, is, like, just kind of listening and kind of taking the pressure off myself. Because I'm the kind of person, I will neglect my physical needs, like you said, Laura. And I also, like hold myself to such high standards sometimes where like our washing machine broke on Monday and we're recording this on Sunday and so I haven't been able to do laundry all week and I was on this schedule of doing a load every day and folding a load every day and there's part of me that thinks oh my god I'm never going to catch up with this laundry and it starts to kind of snowball in my head and then I think okay but what do you do you have to do that today or is this something you can say no i'm i'm like is this paper actually due today or are you just telling yourself it's due and can you go to bed now instead of staying up for two extra hours working on this when you know you really need sleep so i've just been trying to kind of take the pressure that i put on myself Now, there's a balance to that because I talk I've talked to my therapist a lot about this laundry thing um, because I do feel better when I do it every day, you know, and but like I don't I'm not like failing life if I don't. And I think just kind of as, as silly as that sounds like I think sometimes like admitting that to myself, like I don't have to be perfect. And my body is telling me that I need this instead of the laundry folded today. Um, and like my big, one of my big self-care things is just to get under a fuzzy blanket. And I don't know what it is about the tactileness of that, but it, or the weight, like I'm finally understanding like the thunder blanket thing. Like, Oh, there is like a reassuring quality. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I just need to like get under a fuzzy blanket, put on like final destination or something and just kind of try to forget about the gigantic list in my head that most of does not need to get done today. Um, there any other self care, um, grounding, or anything we want to mention, or okay. should we move into our so our homework question for the day? Because um, we want this to be a conversation, um, and we have been getting some responses to our homework questions in the yep. Facebook group, which is so exciting. Um, so, and I want to say first, like there are two different Facebook groups you can join. There is um, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. Um, which is where I will post um, the actual questions. I know, Mike, you posted something in there today, just kind of a check-in. There's a fan-created Facebook group, too, um, that is just – they're so great. And I know a lot of the people who created it, and they're just amazing people. Um, And they're doing fun things like organizing watch parties for the movies and, um, like, just – any other kind of movies they want to watch. Um, And they're also like talking about the episodes and kind of other things about what's going on in their lives. And they're both private and they're both moderated. So those are some kind of safe places where you can talk about some of the stuff. If you don't feel like sharing some of the answers to our questions on social media, we also talked about using the hashtag horror heels. If you want to share your questions and I'll try to post some prompts on our social media Um, But you can find those places to post the answer to the question that I promise we're going to tell you in just a minute um, at psycho a pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can join those two Facebook groups also to share your answer. So there's a variety of ways that you could get involved in this. Um, You can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com. If you want. (laughs) Dot com. If you want to just send a private message that, you know, no one, but the three of us will see. Um, Yeah. And even if if you ever want
2: us to read things on the, um feel free to just yeah. let, let us know we won't we won't read anything unless you specify that you want that to happen but if you do let us know and we can we can make that a thing at some point so yeah yeah, yeah
0: we're kind of playing around with ideas for ways to do that um because we do really want this to be a conversation and i know we've sh- we share a lot of our personal experiences and yours are going to be different and we want to hear that perspective as well so laura what is our question for this this episode
2: yeah i sort of started thinking about like you know, how this conversation made us feel and you were talking about how it made you feel paranoid. So I want to hear from people (laughs) like I think we've all had that experience with horror where something really got under your skin and made you feel paranoid or think something was creeping around in your house at night. So what are some films or stories, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, that made you feel paranoid? And how did you deal with that? Or how didn't you deal with it? Does it still bother you today? Uh, Well, what are Mm -hmm. some that have really gotten under your skin? So that's what I'd like to know.
0: Yeah. And of course, you can always share your um, self-care and any coping or grounding techniques. It does not necessarily have to be related to this episode. If you think of something and you want to share it, we want to hear that, too. Um, So, yeah, you can share that at our social media accounts or in those Facebook groups I mentioned. Um, So what are we watching next, guys? We're continuing our theme with paranoia. Um, And what movies are we going to pair those with?
2: we are doing a double header for the first time um so we we're going to see how that goes but i'm excited <laughs> i'm excited Fires yeah we we both we wanted to talk about watching something uh lighter so we mm-hmm. chose the double header pairing of fright night and the burbs two <laughs> great yeah. classic movies yeah two 80s campy fun
0: <laughs> yeah I love Fright Night with every inch of my being. Talk about mm-hmm. another great sweater movie.
1: Um, <laughs> True. Chris, <laughs> Chris Sarandon oh. can get it. Yeah. H- yes. Hunky
0: sweater neighbor this time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I'd live next door to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Burbs, I remember, I haven't seen it since I was a kid and it terrified me. So I'm interested to revisit that one. So yeah, watch Fright Night and The Burbs for next week. And just a reminder, we're going to spoil those. So if you choose to, make sure to watch the movies beforehand. Right. Um So we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us there as as well as some other amazing shows like The Losers Club, Halloweenies, The Horror Virgin, This Must Be the Gig, Kyle Meredith With, The Assembly, Ghost Echoes, The Fifth Dimension. Um, Lots of fantastic writing on their website, too. So make sure to check that out. Um, Mike, where can we find you outside of psychoanalysis?
1: So outside of psychoanalysis, I also uh, co-host The Pod and The Pendulum. Islam Which we're going to be recording our next episode in about 30 minutes. So (laughs) I'm excited for that. Clear your thoughts. I know. (laughs) I know. Well, I I think I've told our guests, like, I'm going to maybe be doing more facilitating Mm, today. mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, The Pot and the Pendulum is a, if you listen to other shows on this network, like Halloweenies, similar in that we like take deep dives into horror movie franchises. Like, we cover a different franchise. We'll do, uh, one episode or in the case of a nightmare in elm street we've done two episodes on the west craven's nightmare in elm street we plan on doing two episodes on dream master and new nightmare just oh. because we've had so many guests that want to come on and discuss those movies mm-hmm. and i'm like i would like to get all of these voices on so mm-hmm. we do really deep dives into the production history to the context of where that movie sits within like the franchise and within horror movies of the day, social issues, mental health issues, thematic issues, um, what the movies mean to us. Like I was really fortunate. Like, uh, it's a few weeks before this comes out, but we, I just did an episode with, uh, Jerry couldn't make it. It was myself and Jay Blake for Shara from the Saturday night sleepovers podcast, Mm. as well as, um, the author of Score to Death, which is a book on uh, where he interviews a number of horror movie composers, and he it was just like a wonderful conversation that was really like steeped in nostalgia, uh, and it's one of the favorite shows I've done because I really love his podcast uh, that he does with his friend Dion, and it was just fun to kind of do just speak for a couple hours in that. So that is where you can find uh, me. We are at Pod and the Pendulum. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. And you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. So, yeah, you okay. should definitely listen to that because, in all honesty, it's it's a fucking great podcast. <laughs> I
0: think so, too.
2: <laughs> I, appre- yeah. I appreciate that you're just going for it. And, and no, right. no no humble brag, just go for it.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I'm going to say this. I think that, like... I know that imposter syndrome is a thing. I know it yep.
2: is. Hey, Jen. I, oh, I hate myself. Don't worry.
3: I oh, yeah. <laughs> also
1: think that there are a number of us that are like, look, if you thought you were so terrible, you wouldn't create content to mm. put it out. Because mm-hmm. why would you purposely put out into the world something that is bad? Yeah. And I think that all of us would be much better off if we said, here's something we're good at, and I would like to share it with you. And I know that's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um but, like, I am really proud of the work that we're doing over there, mm-hmm. so... No,
2: and I, and I wasn't being sarcastic when I said that no. I like it, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, I'm, yeah. I, it makes me happy mm-hmm. to hear you do that, because I, right. I, I know it's something I do where I'm very down on everything, but if I... If I ever heard someone else talking the way my internal monologue Mm -hmm. sounds, I'd be like, shut the fuck up. You're great. Like, shut Mm -hmm. up. Exactly. Um, So I I do appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Well, and hey, maybe bonus homework question. Tell us something you're good at or you are proud of that you accomplished, you know.
2: Yeah, I think. To try to, like,
0: practice that skill, you know.
2: Exactly. Just practice being proud of something. Um, yeah. As far as where you can find me, I'm on Twitter at Underalls, U N D E R A L S, like the stuff you wear under your pants. Uh, <laughs> on in- Instagram, that's what it's called, right? At in- <laughs> I don't know my brain at Instaglum, like Instagram but sad. And on, the, on those places, I just I just make content. Yeah, it's delightful and great and, and and to <laughs> practice what I just preached. It's so good. <laughs> and you should follow Do me. <laughs> you should. I
0: second that. Yeah. Once
1: more with feeling.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. Right. <laughs> no, that's all yeah. I have in me. <laughs> <So>. No. <laughs> um you can find me um on the Loser's Club and uh writing for the Consequence website also. But you can find me on social media at Jen 2 with two ends on all of the socials. Um talking about horror and posting about my crazies. Um <laughs> So <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and to i guess i think i'm pretty great too maybe (laughs) (laughs) i know it's so hard
2: to say it out loud i know man i think you're great and i think you're great i just pointed at both of them uh and i think
0: and i'm gonna look at myself in the eyes and say I think you're great. (laughs) I think we're all great. (laughs) Well, and on that note, um, thank you so much for joining us for this episode on Sinister. We will see you in two weeks for our next episode on Paranoia. For now, I'm Jen Adams.
2: I'm Lara Unterstall.
1: Are you? (laughs)
2: <laughs> am I? I thought that was, Are uh, you? Uh, I don't I thought know. thought that was a good show. Yes.
0: And, Paranoia, and, man. Yes. I don't know. And, Why am I? Am,
1: and I am Mike What
0: <laughs> um, well, Guys, we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all, all out of bubblegum. Bubble <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Did right. you guys see that somebody made a... Uh, Image of that, yeah, Rowdy <laughs> Rowdy Piper. Not. It
2: was that Matt Matt oh. Elliott guy, I think. Yeah, and he made it into like a meme with the impact font, with like Rowdy Rowdy Rowdy. Oh my God, Rowdy Rowdy Piper, <laughs> <laughs> like trying to say that was, three times fast.
0: I know, Rowdy Rowdy Piper. Yeah. It was really cool.